In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. There is a secret U.S. government. <laughs> it's called China. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. UFOs don't need secrecy. They're already unidentified. Anything goes in Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Paratopia, please welcome our very, 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 very special guest. Uh, we we had tried to record this earlier. He was kind enough to uh, give us two hours then. The audio got a little messed up, and he is kind enough to give us yet another two hours. So we are forever indebted to him. He is the author of UFOs and the National Security State. He is Richard Dolan. Hello, gentlemen. Well, you know, it's not that hard because I got the script right here. We're just going to reread the whole thing. <laughs> yes, that's right. So we're cool yes. with that. We'll be bored, but you people, you people will love this. It'll all be new. Um, so, okay, UFOs National Security State, you are doing a second book, and um, I guess the first question is how does it differ, and uh, what what's sort of the same about it? What did you improve upon in, in all of that? Right. Well, it's uh, it's the second volume in what is now certainly going to be a, a three-volume, a trilogy of the UFO phenomenon in the modern era, uh, covering 1941 to the present day. So as some readers know, if they've read my first book, the first volume uh, covers in as much detail as I can stand uh, the history of the phenomenon and the, and the cover-up from the early 40s up to 1973. This new volume, which I have finished, and it's at the printer right now, and I expect it back uh, in less than one week, covers from 1973, late 73 to 1991, the end of the Cold War uh, with, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So in, in that sense, the book is simply a continuation of the first volume, and it will be up the and then the culmination of course will be in the third volume but there's there's things that are that are different about this new book i mean i've been in this field now a much longer time and i think um some of the material in this new book does reflect a deepening i'd like to think is a deepening of my own interest and knowledge of this topic but uh essentially I, i look at this new book as as like a chair that stands on three legs um or, or three major themes, in a sense, that are interwoven might be a better way to describe it. Uh, the first major theme of this book is, like with the first book, a, something of an encyclopedic, like a reference text, you might say, of all the major UFO sightings, events uh, that occurred during that period of time. So if you were interested, for example, in uh, a good summary of the Travis Walton case or the Gulf Breeze case, or um, you know the entry of Bob Lazar into ufology, or any number of things that occurred during the 1970s and 80s, then my hope is that this book would serve as a very useful uh, entry point into those, giving a very concise but very complete 
description of what was important about about each of those things. And there's hundreds and hundreds of such uh, moments like that that I cover. The second theme of this book is a little more analytical, or it's my attempt to analyze the geopolitics or the what we might call even the cover-up, the, you know, who's in charge. Is there a UFO conspiracy? If so, how is it being run? What's the attitude of responsible um, individuals about that, and to what extent can we learn what those, those attitudes were? Uh, there's a lot of gaps in our knowledge of that, obviously, but there's, there are things that we can learn about it as well, and I've tried to uh, fill in that aspect of it as, as completely as I can. And then the third theme of the book is, uh, in, in many ways, it became the most interesting for me personally as I was researching this, that is the history of the UFO research itself, or the history of ufology during the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, up to 1991. And what I found is that UFO research was in a very, very different place in uh, the early 70s from where it ended up by the time that the Cold War ended in 1991. Um, a lot had, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot had come out, uh, whether it was the animal mutilation history and it, the question as to whether or not that was related to UFOs, or the uh, abduction phenomenon, which became very, very much discussed in ufology during that period of time. Sure, there had been abduction cases that were known about in the 60s and even in the 50s, but these were almost considered side issues at the time. Ufologists were not really looking at abductions in a serious way until the 1970s. And when they started doing so, it, uh, it ripped the field wide open in many ways. And then, of course, what you also get in, in the 70s and 80s is the advent uh, of the the investigation of cases like Roswell and other crash retrievals or alleged crash retrievals of UFOs. Uh, this was, again, something that in the 1950s and 60s was just not taken very seriously by nearly anybody in UFO research. Uh, it seemed to be a crazy thought. Uh, and yet by the late 70s, uh, many, many uh, researchers increasingly were reconsidering that point of view. And so the uh, introduction of abductions into research and crash retrieval phenomenon transformed ufology in many, many important ways. On top of that, there's a backdrop here in this, in this book, and that is uh, the backdrop of a world in technological change as well as uh, political transformation. But let's look at the technology, and, and it's during that period of time, the 1980s really, and early 90s, that we get mass amounts of personal computers uh, being used by people and the, the, the little early internet, the baby internet uh, by the late 1980s was having a massive impact on ufology as well. Uh, this is also something I try to understand and to analyze. So um, those are the three strands of the book. <clears throat> the, the thing about ufology that I, I found very interesting and that occurred to me really toward the end of the book is that, you know, the period of the 1970s, it seems to me, is the first period, not just in the modern period of understanding UFOs, but in human history, that human beings really sought in a systematic way to try to understand the nature of this other intelligence or intelligences that was studying them and that probably had been studying them for a very, very long time. So in a sense, you could say it's a period in, in the history of human consciousness in which we kind of try to turn the tables, as it were, or at least try to understand a little bit more about them. 
um, I think that's really the, the, the baby steps there as, as far as that was concerned. Well, let, let me ask you, uh, getting back to the uh, second tier here um, of the book, when you are trying to piece together, um, well, sort of the case that, that there's a secret space program going on, right. and you're only really allowed to use either anonymous sources or sources that uh, have stepped forward but are completely sketchy, um, how do you take those? How do you? What do you do to to sift through that and say, okay, this seems legitimate, this doesn't? How do you build that? Well, case? not all right. Not all sources are anonymous, and uh, many sources are are very well documented and uh, and open and, and not argued. So what you what you have to do at all times is know what your your basic factual skeleton framework is, so to speak. And then when you find when you get anonymous sources, when you get leaks and things like that, you. Um, I mean, each one has to be judged on an individual basis, and you have to see, you have to understand or analyze how well it it fits with what you know. Uh, that doesn't prove it's true. But for example, I mean, there's there's I think a very strong case to be made that there's a, there's a secret space program, and here's why I think so. Uh, there are many well documented cases at this point, in my view, for anomalous activity occurring in Earth's orbit. Uh, not just U.S. missions, but Soviet missions, uh, that during the 1980s tracked very, very strange, unusual phenomena that really don't have an easy explanation, at least as far as I've been able to understand. Uh, During the 1980s, a number of American shuttle missions videotaped and tracked UFOs uh, as well as Soviet missions. Uh, We also, I, I was very fortunate in getting uh, the records from uh, aerospace engineer Ron Regeer, who worked at uh, a company called Aerojet during the 1980s. Uh, Ron was an expert in what was known as the DSP satellite, and this is a defense support program. Uh, the DSP satellites are a series of geosynchronous satellites that, uh, as far as Ron was able to understand the technology and their mission, ideally suited for UFO tracking satellites. Uh, they may have been used for other things as well, but they were perfect for this. In fact, it was a DSP satellite that tracked a UFO over the city of Tehran in 1976 on the date that we know there was a spectacular UFO encounter with the Iranian Air Force. Well, it also turns out that the DSP records, which Ron legally, although accidentally, but legally got access to, tracked during the 1970s and 80s and early 90s several hundred trackings of uh, so-called fast walkers in the atmosphere. Uh, some of these coming from deep space and indeed even doing like U-turns or, or significant kind of angled turns in space, but many of them in, in uh, lower Earth orbit as well. I have the records of these that, I was, that Ron uh, very kindly gave to me. So what we can say without a doubt is that our own satellite systems, our own military is tracking an enormous number, I mean really a spectacular number of UFOs that are in space. So let, let's put it this way. All right. Now that's, that's a fact that we know about and let's use a little bit of common sense. I think that if we've got hundreds of uncorrelated targets that are being tracked by our technology in space, it's that in itself would probably be a good justification for a secret space program. After all, you want to go and investigate these things, but you don't want the public to uh, follow you around with prying eyes and cameras. Uh, 
And so, of course, that's not proof there's a space program that's secret, but it would be a good motivator. But there are other reasons to think that we have a secret space program. Uh, it just so happens that, in my view, the, the anomalies that we track constantly in space, and this goes on right up to the present day, uh, this is a good motivator. Now, whether those uh, anomalies are made by us or made by uh, someone other than us, in a sense, it almost doesn't matter. If they're made by us, that's, that's proof, I guess, of a secret space program, clearly. And if it's not us, then it would certainly be proof of a strong motivation for one. Well, do you put so, a boundary on what on what a secret space program would be capable of? In other words, uh, you know, if you think about Jacques Vallée's uh, book on that, um, the Russian case where the, the, the UFO lands in, in like a park or something and a bunch of kids see this sort of giant monstrous thing get out. Talking about the Voronezh case. Yeah. Now, if you look at something like that, I mean, if we have a space program to safeguard against such things, how could that even happen? Well, there's no there's no evidence or proof that our space program would be would be all that effective against against them. Simply because we have a space program doesn't mean that it's stopping them. Right. Okay. Right. I mean, certainly, uh, a space program we have might be might be just at the, the kindergarten level compared with what these other beings might be able to do. Uh, it's a, a speculation that I put out in my book, in fact, that the, the SDI, the, Sp- the Strategic Dependence Initiative of Ronald President Reagan's administration, popularly known as Star Wars, that this was, I think, um, very probably, probably had a component or maybe a deep black component that was connected with the ET phenomenon. Uh, certainly the rumor mill never stops uh, mentioning such things, but I think, again, when I look at the uh, the con the conflux of all of the events that were going on in space, Earth orbit at that time, in the early 80s, there was a lot. Um, I think, yes. And then when you look at some of the weaponry that we know were being developed under SDI, there was a kind of a plasma bullet that was one of these items being developed. And it traveled at speeds that actually <clears throat> put it right very much in line with the, the probable speed, if you, if you recall in the, uh, the 1991 video of the, uh, the famous STS-48 encounter um, in Earth orbit, where this was made it on Fox TV and it's all over YouTube, where uh, an object is being tracked by our shuttle coming in from what appears to be deeper space, approaching Earth. And then, of course, in the lower left part of the screen, there's a flash, and the uh, original object then stops and turns right back around. And at the same time, this object from the lower part of the screen comes straight up on a trajectory that seems like it, w- it could have hit the, uh, the original object. Mm-hmm. So if you just look at it from a common sense point of view, or a mundane point of view, it looks like we're having a, a version of space wars going on here, right? Now, some have argued that that's not what it appears to be. Um, although, as I argue in the book, I, I don't find those arguments particularly persuasive. I think that it is an anomalous event. But the point is, the estimated speed of that um, of the uh, laser or the bullet, whatever was fired at this thing, there's been an argument against it that it would have been something like 15,000 miles per hour, and we don't have anything of that speed that, that would have been able to do that. And in fact, that's wrong. The SDI system, the SDI program, excuse me, did create um, this type of a, a bullet that would fire at approximately that speed. I think that's what it is. But but in other words, there are reasons to 
I, I haven't found anything that rules out a secret space program, and I've seen many things that lead me to believe that it's a real possibility. And then when you start looking at things like um, money gone missing from our federal government. You know, back in uh, 1994, there was a federal law passed uh, during the Clinton years, of course, that essentially required the federal government to account for its activities in a, in a so-called business-like manner. So basically what that meant is that a, a number of audits began to be made of the federal government at around that time, and, and we have a number of five or six reports from Congress and, and from the mainstream newspapers that describe uh, $1 trillion missing from the federal government or $2 trillion missing and all through the 1990s. Most famously, this culminated in a statement by Donald Rumsfeld in uh, July of, of 2001 in which he spoke about $2.6 trillion. This was amended to $2.3 trillion of, on, of transactions that were missing. So they found some of it. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um, you know, what's interesting about that is, <clears throat> of course, that number, I mean, I'm not an accountant. Uh, that number is eight, was eight times the official budget of the Pentagon in fiscal year 2001. Budget was something like $310 billion. Uh, now, these are transactions that, uh, they're accounting, accounting glitches, you might say. But the fact is, Year in, year out, there's an enormous amount of money that seems to go missing. And so where does it go? Well, does it all go into private bank accounts? Probably not. Some of it surely does. But I think a lot of it goes into black programs, that is highly classified special access programs, that are off limits from congressional oversight, always have been. Uh, many of these special access programs, and I, I do try to describe them in my book here, uh, to the extent that we can learn about them. Many of them are not even sufficiently being uh, supervised by their own departments. So, for example, in the Navy, uh, we learned just a couple of years ago, there were a, a series of black budget programs that, forget Congress, the Navy wasn't even exercising oversight over them. The, the Secretary of the Navy is wondering, I, saying, I don't really even know how many of these we have and how much money is going into them. So w what we've developed through the 70s and 80s and beyond is, a, is truly a government out of control with lots and lots of missing money. So in other words, the means would be there for a secret space program. The other reason I think there is one is due to the fact that I think the evidence strongly points to the fact that we have been developing or at least trying really hard and maybe pretty well to develop our own version of flying saucers. Um, now, if we have made significant progress, and I, I'm thinking that there's a good chance we have, the question arises, what would be the mission of these flying saucers? Because for sure they would have come in handy in Iraq or Afghanistan, you might think, where the United States has fought two wars that have now effectively uh, bankrupt our treasury and really trashed our economy. I mean, after all, if you're not going to use this technology to save your own economy from potential ruin, uh, what would you use them for? It's, been a, it's an obvious question. If we're making the so-called triangular aircraft, which many people have speculated, why aren't we using these in, in warfare? And I think, I think that uh, the answer to that is quite simple. It's that um, 
Well, a good way to answer it is by, by prefacing it with a, a historical example of the bombing of Libya in 1986. I remember this quite well. <clears throat> Uh, the United States bombed Libya, actually tried to kill Muammar Gaddafi, and, and they failed. Perhaps one reason they failed is that they didn't get to use their top-of-the-line fighter aircraft, which was then the still-classified F-117 Nighthawk, the stealth fighter. That had been operational for several years, and it was not used in the Libya operation. Instead, the U.S. used um, F-111s. Uh, now, why would you not use your top-of-the-line fighter aircraft for a mission like this. And the reason was that the existence of the stealth fighter was still, it was so important to keep it classified that that secret was more important than actually using it in this mission. It's kind of perverse, but that, that was what was happening. So using the same logic, I think that if you had one or several fl functional flying saucers that had the potential to do what flying saucers do, i.e. go off-world and uh, zip around in ways that our, our own fighter aircraft can't do. What would you use them for? What would their mission be? Well, I think it's reasonable at least to speculate that they would be used to deal with them, whoever them happens to be, the operators of the true UFOs, and that such a mission very well might be considered so important that it must never be compromised, not ever, by any mundane geopolitical conflict. Now, again, I'm, I'm freely acknowledging that I'm speculating here, mm -hmm. but it's just it's a line of speculation that the, I've been looking at this for a long time now, and the longer I look at it, the more it makes sense to me. Uh, there are there are pieces that fit into this puzzle. There's a lot of pieces that are still missing, of course, and so the one thing that I would caution anyone listening is against thinking that I this is an open and shut case. I'm keeping the door open for other interpretations too. Well, right, but I do the, think that... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, ju I do think the time is right, at least that this type of speculation should be considered a reasonable line of inquiry. Mm -hmm. I know that one of the criticisms of the first book was that you speculated too much and didn't differentiate between speculation and, um, you know, sort of the history and factual evidence. Uh, do you think that that's I, I, a valid criticism? And if no, so, did absolutely you... not. No, no, no. absolutely not. Okay. No, I don't. Do you feel I, like I, you did that? And are you maintaining that you no. did that in this book? No. Well, um, any, any speculation I have had in the first or in the second volume, I think, is very, very clearly made. Okay. Um, you know, it, I don't think that I've ever lost sight of what I know for sure and what I think things may look like. So where do where does Paul Kimball or Dick Hall or any of these people, where do they come up with that? Well, you know, Dick Hall, unfortunately, can't speak for himself anymore since he's passed away. Uh, but Paul Kimball, well, you'll have to ask him yourself. Um, I really don't I don't want to speak for Paul on this matter. I mean, I'm actually on fairly friendly terms with Paul personally, but uh, I, I'm not going to presume to make his argument for him. But I, I don't think it's a valid argument, no. Um, if if there's a criticism one can make about my first book, uh, there are some. I, I'm I'm very hard on my first book in a lot of ways. Uh, if I were to redo one thing better and over, it would be my analysis of the so-called uh, Nazi connection to UFOs. And I will freely acknowledge that uh, at the time that I wrote that book, really in the late '90s, or something, putting it all together, I didn't have a full appreciation of just how far. 
a lot of the German technology during World War II was. I mean, I knew that there were some unconventional concepts being worked on and, and rumors of discs, but I think that those those are more than rumors. And in fact, uh, the very excellent book by the aviation writer Nick Cook, The Hunt for Zero Point, came out after my own book came out. And um, too bad for me, but whenever I do a revision of the first volume, which one day down the road I imagine I may, uh, I'll, I'll hopefully deal with all of those. But no, I mean, honestly, let, let's take off the gloves here, and I'll talk about Paul Kimball and, and Dick Hall uh, to the extent that I feel that I'm being reasonable. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of Dick Hall, I know for sure, because I read his uh, very critical review of my book in the uh, IUR, the International UFO Reporter, when it came out. And Dick Hall was very upset with my book, in fact. Uh, he felt it was a disservice. He felt it was a conspiracy-mongering exercise. Uh, he was offended, and that was exactly the word he used, by my insinuation that the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, did not die as a suicide, but in fact was murdered. I don't think that that's such an outrageous case. Uh, and I think that I, I put together a reasonably strong case that, that James Forrestal was murdered. Um, the reason I included a discussion of James Forrestal at all is because that in the context of American politics in 1948 and 1949, that's the year that Forrestal died, that, uh, you know, the mysterious death of the former Secretary of Defense, a man who presumably would have known everything that we needed, that he was needed to know about UFOs at that time, that, you know, if, if you include the elephant in the, in the dining room, that is the UFO phenomenon, in the mix, and if this man's death was as suspicious as it looked, then one has to consider the UFO connection to his death. And this is really what I tried to bring out. Uh, Hall uh, specifically found that offensive. Um, Hall was also uh, offended by my speculation on the death of, of uh, James McDonald, uh, the, of course, the very great atmospheric physicist in the 1960s who took on the UFO conspiracy issue head on and really moved himself to front row center of this discussion for a number of years and then died um, of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, or at least that's what it seems like, in 1971. And once again, uh, I, I brought out that there are reasons to wonder about the death of McDonald. And in fact, Ann Druffel, who did a, a much more thorough biography of McDonald afterwards, uh, said really nothing very different than what I said on that matter. So um, I don't think that I was being outrageous, but these were things that, that really offended Dick Hall. Um, he, he was also offended by, by how I treated the CIA in this book. He said I was disrespectful to the CIA. And I just found all of this absurd. I mean, <laughs> how is that possible? <laughs> I, I'm not kidding you here. This was Hall's review. And, and let me make this clear because it was Dick Hall's review that set the tone for every other subsequent – if there was a negative review of my book, they all essentially used Hall's argument and language. And so um, I was allowed uh, to print my own rebuttal in the IUR, and, and the uh, director of the IUR, Mark Rodiger, very graciously allowed me to do it. And I thought that I spoke very well in defense of, of my research at that time. So uh, that's Dick Hall. I felt – uh, actually, it's a shame that he won't be alive to read my next book because he's very prominent in it. And I said many, many um, 
very complimentary things about Descartes as a researcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly harbored no personal vendetta against him. I mean, when I'm doing any history, my job is not to get personal at all. That would be that would be absurd. My job is to step back and to be as detached as I can be. We're all human beings. We're all fallible, myself certainly included. So I wouldn't exempt myself from from uh, saying that there are flaws in my book. Uh, certainly not. But the, the arguments I think that were levied against were more political than anything else. And I would say this about Paul Kimball, by the way, who I think uh, ultimately has a very different political orientation than I do. It's very obvious. Paul Kimball, in my view, for many, many years, harbored a very much a neoconservative political perspective on matters. Yes. And it's it's very obvious, okay, that that my politics are not the same as his politics. I look at neoconservatism as a, as a really evil cancer that did a lot of damage and has, continues to do a lot of damage to our political system. Now, that's separate from the UFO issue. But the fact is that, I'm, that Paul Kimball didn't like the politics that he was reading into my book. Hmm. And so I feel that, that that was a lot behind what the criticism was. Now, that was then. You know, I had an opportunity couple of times now to meet with Paul Kimball. And I met with him for the first time at uh, one of the one of the X conferences uh, organized by Steve Bassett. I think it was the X conference, oh, 2008. Mm-hmm. Might have been 2007. And, you know, to our mutual shock, uh, Paul Kimball and I stayed out till about 3 a.m. drinking beer one night, having a great time. And in fact, I had a presentation to give early the next morning, not feeling too good. But that was okay. I enjoyed my time with Paul, and I think he and I uh, recognized in each other that we were both serious researchers for what we did. And I, I, I would like to think that Paul um, looks at my work a little differently now than he did back then. But who knows? You'll have to ask him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to go off in another direction, but I just want to make sure, uh, Jeff, do you have anything before I steer us? If I can, I, I would be I would be remiss to not to kind of respond to the STS forty eight footage because that was actually found in a by a guy named Don Ratch in, in Maryland, um, and uh, uh, w- way back in the day, I think I was one of the first people to get a look at that because uh, my research partner was tied up with. Uh, uh, orga- uh organization called Operation Right to Know, and, and Don Ratch, somehow or another, through the channels, we got a copy of his, his tape from that. I guess the only thing I can say about it from a, a visual standpoint is that I, I am far beyond being convinced of that as being anything other than than particles, and I'll, I'll explain briefly why. The official explanation, of course, is going to be ice crystals uh, that surround the craft as it's in orbit. Um uh, or debris that's coming off of the shuttle one way or another. And Rich mentions the, the, the single object that uh, it comes up from the bottom right-hand side of the screen, and there's a flash, and then we see this thing make an abrupt right-angle turn, and what seems to look like it's accelerating into blackness. It, it, the problem that I have with, with a lot of people's interpretations of that is is that everyone kind of focuses on that single object that's there. Now, the flash was described as a, a short thruster uh, going off. And we don't, on the outside of looking at it, if you're just sitting and watching it on the outside of that, you, don't, you really don't see any attitude adjustment of the craft itself in relationship to where the Earth is in the frame. But if you go from beginning to end, 
uh, in that you do see a slight bit of a of movement in that. So I can I can swallow that that was a thruster going off ever so briefly. But I have a problem with the way people interpret what they see on that screen um, in relation to a, a 3D space because it, it's after all it's a flat image on a TV screen. What people rarely mention in association with that is that that is not the only object that moves off when that flash occurs. There are multitudes of others in that if you do only so much as to run that through a process that uh, darkens the 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 earth a bit more and brings up the whites a bit more you'll see a multitude of objects responding to that flash not as sharply not as uh, not as quickly uh, but i can fully see how if there was an object floating relatively close which I think a lot of these NASA videos, including the tether footage that's out there, is exactly that. Um, and when this when this booster went off, it basically threw this particle um, into a right angle turn, which is not. Uh, I, I basically tell people if you want to do a really good test, uh, is to set up a camera and uh, take a small pinch of baby powder and hold it at the ceiling, and you stand about halfway down to the floor. And when the powder gets to such a point where it's floating in front of you, just blow. Uh, and you'll see a lot of what happens in that footage, including some pieces tumbling that are clearly elongated, some of them changing pitch and moving off all in that same upper right direction. So the, the, the problem that I have with a lot of these is, again, people say, well, it's glowing. And again, this is more along the lines of people not understanding how video works and and for that matter understanding how video would work looking at that sort of environment you've got an earth that is uh, a grayish hue and you've got this absolute blackness of space and you have these particles that are relatively close are lit by reflected light from the shuttle or light from the sun so they're already bright but at the point where they cross over top of the earth image again we're talking 2d uh, visuals for us uh, the easiest way to explain it is that uh, an object does get does get somewhat brighter in front of a, a less dark background when they become incredibly stark black and whites. There's not that halo of coagulated pixels or uh, uh, you know or, or whatever terminology that you want to use. There it becomes bigger in the sense of looking at it in front of a lighter object versus the blackness of what space would look like. Well, uh, certainly. Uh, uh, let me just uh, jump sure. in. I don't want to. If you want to continue, do feel free. Yeah. Um, I know. I think you make very a very strong case. In in the case of how I treated the STS forty eight, I, I let me just say, <clears throat> um, I, I don't. I didn't strive to do a one sided treatment of it. And uh, although I didn't have your analysis in front of me, Jeff, I wish that I had. Um, I certainly had uh, the analysis of James Oberg, right. who had written about it at length and, and certainly incorporated his. His statements on it as well. I didn't want to do a one-sided treatment of it. Right. Uh, the thing, the thing about going through a field like this, from my point of view, is it it is impossible for me um, to to put my gavel down on every single case that I come. Oh, absolutely. I can't. And so, really, the best that I can hope to do, at the very least, is is a clear explication. Mm-hmm. Of of the case of each case, how it developed, uh, what the main arguments, uh, pro and con, may have been. Mm-hmm. And then do my best clearly to, to do justice to each side. Now, having said that, um, 
it's it's almost inevitable that when you deal with case by case, you do develop opinions about them. And I, I would say it's fair that I developed an opinion that the SCS-48 showed something anomalous, right. uh, not not based on just what I would see. When I, I could look at it on YouTube any time, of course. Right. Um, Fairly low resolution, yeah. But but based on based on the, the fairly long analyses that I've read by a number of people who, who've studied it at length, so there are arguments. Uh, you know, certainly Jack Casher comes to mind who yes. prominently studied this and argued that that it was anomalous or that it wasn't wasn't ice crystals, right? Um, but anyway, no. I um, you know if I end up doing another edition of of this book years down the road, it's not going to come soon. I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> I, I am always open to um, modifying modifying conclusions. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, and, and it, 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 I don't think it has to be said that there has been uh, in years past, both the Russians and us have, have have gotten some pretty weird stuff on film, uh, lighted objects that are clearly lighted objects that are clearly lights of some sort. Um, that, right. exactly. you know, that, that don't watch. blink, that don't uh, seem to tumble, and uh, you know, I, I, I just see an awful, awful lot. I mean, Rich, if you, if you don't know, I, I'm uh, image analysis for um, uh, a few websites out there. The most prominent being AboveTopSecret.com. I get a lot of footage sent to me from there, That's right? Thank and a lot of people uh, put up the NASA footage. Um, Either you know taken from some Sarita's work, uh, and I use the term work loosely when I refer to him. Um, you know, it, a lot of it people say, "Well, look, it's blinking," and I said, "No, it's tumbling." <laughs> um, you know, it, it just—I think a lot of these things come down to what people's perception are looking at a two D screen. That number one don't really realize how the image is getting onto their screen and how that that technical aspect works but also don't know the anomalies that can occur within a camera to make something appear uh much much different than what it actually is so Fair enough. you know well, jump, jumping ahead to the the tether incident i don't i don't treat that in this in this book but i, right. I will be treating it in the third volume mm-hmm. I, i've never really felt um that I wanted to make a public statement about it, and I was never convinced one way or the other what it was. Right. But the more that I've looked at that, you know, the one thing I kept trying to look at in the Tether case, uh, it's getting a little off the field, is whether or not one of those little uh, circular objects with the notch cut out of it uh-huh. could actually be seen going behind the Tether. I mean, to me, if it's behind the Tether, mm-hmm. then that would be very interesting. And I, I've never... There's a case of one or two where it looked like it, it might... It might almost be behind, but I really couldn't be sure that it was. Right. And then when you look at, at the all of the huge, massive objects out there, it just boggles the mind. Well, uh, I think my common sense says to me, there's got to be some other explanation that, that these are all alien craft. Right. Well, so, here's right. the thing you ask yourself about that. You see that piece of footage, and you, you clearly see what looks like disks. Uh, exactly. With a notch and a hole in the middle, and some of them are, are undulating light or look like that. Right. Let me ask you this. If, if you or I got in a space shuttle tomorrow and went up there and, uh, and we saw that, do you think that the first question out of our mouths would be, wow, flying saucers? Don't you think the question would be, wow, why are they all perfectly aligned flat to our view? <laughs> I mean, that to me ah. right there says – this is not what people think this is. This is ob- I mean, to me, it's obviously these are small things that are close to the camera, and um, 
and, and on with the lens, uh, some kind of reflection. Well, you're getting you're getting an aperture shape in you know in the way of a blur of a very small object that's very close and very well lit, uh, and and some of them tumbling means that they're going to undulate like that. But the overall picture is of this this round disc with a notch cut out of it. And I know that right. there have been people who have made connections between that and, and some ancient artifacts that have been the, the, the Dropa stones. Uh, Not me. No, Not me. me. Nor me. Did you, did you see that? There was a History Channel documentary that I appeared on uh-huh. along, along with David Serrata uh, and a number of other people. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was uh, a lot of it dealt with the whole Dropa stone issue. And I was, <laughs> I was the, um, the fly in the ointment on that one. I was I was the uh, the not fun guy because I uh-huh. I I argued. I first of all the argument f- for the reality of the Dropa stones is itself very very weak to say that that's giving being generous right. about it. I'm surprised I even remembered the name. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, well, you pulled that one. Out. I, I, yeah, I really did. Um, I remember it well because I was asked to comment on it for this documentary, and um, fortunately I knew a couple of things about it. And then I, I studied up. I had a book that purported to be about this and. Uh, no, I'm just. Can you say what they are really quickly so people know what we're referring to here? Yeah, the, here's here's what the Dropa stones. Thank you, Aaron. Um, Jeremy, sorry. Um, yeah, the Dropa stones are said to be um, a series of stones that were found in like Western China, I think near Tibet, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. that uh, have these kinds of grooves in them, like like the old fashioned LP records sort of. Okay, so they're like discs um, with a hole in the middle and these grooves. And the story is uh, they were found supposedly around the early 20th century, 1930s, 1940s in China, uh, and then supposedly were studied um, in the Soviet Union and in China, and some smart Chinese scientist dude figured out what the Dropa Stones said. And that – I mean this is incredible when you think about it. It's absurd. Uh, that they're 12,000 years old, and they described uh, the, these beings that came from elsewhere and were stranded on Earth somehow. I think it was, if I'm, I'm fuzzy on this, but that's pretty much what it was. And so, now I asked, this is what I said on, on the documentary. I mean, it's a logical question. No one else asked it. When you got um, something like the Rosetta Stone, Okay, this was discovered a little over 200 years ago and deciphered by a linguist of genius named Champollion who spent 25 years studying um, this, uh, this tablet. And, and it was from Champollion's work that we were able to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics. But the way he was able to do it is that the Rosetta Stone had three ancient languages on them, Egyptian hieroglyphic, uh, Coptic, Christ- uh, Coptic Egyptian and uh, Greek, I believe. So by knowing the, the two of the languages, he was able to decipher the third. Now in the case, of, and, and it took him 25 years, and he was a very exceptional man. So now we've got the Dropa Stones. We have absolutely no reference point of, at all, except we're told that there are these grooves in these discs. And, uh, and this Chinese guy, no one even knows who the hell he is, <laughs> figures it out. And then it's published, not in a, any scientific journal, it's published in a, in a German tabloid uh, around the year 1960. It was total nonsense, in other words. But it was, it was based on that. I mean, that's the source, if you can believe it, of the Dropa Stone mystery. So in other words, it's absolute 
nonsense and really should not be uh, taken seriously by any researcher. If you want to devote your life to figuring it out, be my guest. But don't <laughs> expect the rest of us to sign on to that until you come up with something. Yeah. So anyway, th- this documentary uh, mentioned the Drop of Stones. And, and what I've just said to you on the air now is pretty much what I said about five years ago for that. But um, in fact, the argument was made. I, I don't, you know, when you do a TV documentary, you never really know how you come out and things get edited in certain ways. But it did make David Serrata seem like he argued the Dropa Stones were of a direct relationship to the uh, the objects seen in the Tether video. Right, yeah. Um, now, so I, think that, I think that's where it came from. I think that's why a lot of people right. kind of drew those lines in on the message boards and and, uh, but it's just you know it's a, it's a dead end and uh, I mean they're really they're both dead ends most likely certainly the Dropa Stone is a, is a total dead end and yeah. I think I'm inclined to agree that the, the Tether video is not that persuasive to me. Well, I, I'm I'm just grateful that Paratopia was the first show to ever get Richard Dolan to say Chinese dude. Uh, <laughs> so. I'm looking forward to playing I, around. I'm going to play around with that, that soundbite a little bit. Am I that much of a funny daddy? Really? Do I, am I that square? Am I that, that my daughter thinks I am, but I didn't know anyone else did. No. I was up no. there with uh, when I had Leo Sprinkle say the F-bomb on uh, Uncle Contact. I was like, really? Leo Sprinkle? Oh. Wow. Cool. Yeah. yeah. I like that one. Uh, so, Rich, I want to switch gears here and um, ask you, um, in your new book, if you had to pick one well-known case and one case that you found that you don't think has gotten really any press coverage around these parts um, to take to Congress and say, here's the evidence, uh, what what would they be? Well, I, there, I, I thought you were going to ask me if there was like a little-known case that I thought was really neat. Um, <laughs> I don't know if this case would be considered a, a great one, but it was an interesting one. It was a uh, – um, this is really not your answer – um, it was a case in Mexico in 1975 in which a... a you just a answer prime- the questions you want to hear, and then I'll, I'll edit it later. Yeah. So wait, no, you're, let, let's back up. So you're asking, about, you're asking about a case that um, is actually a great case that a lot of people don't know about. Is yeah. that really what you- Yeah, like if you had to take one that's well-known uh, and you could argue it before a court of law, say, and one that's not well-known, what would those two cases be? Oh, wow. Well, that's an excellent case. Um, uh, excellent question. Um, okay. I think that uh, a couple of cases from the mid-1980s come to mind. Um, in fact, two cases from, I think they're both 1986, that I think are, are particularly interesting. Um, the one case is, is uh, fairly well-known, and it took place over the state of Alaska by a pilot uh, going who actually flew over the North Pole with a big case of expensive French wine, cargo flight, uh, in which he uh, saw an enormous, and his crew as well, not just him, saw an enormous, what seemed like a UFO, off the left side of their aircraft as they're flying. Uh, this object then detaching two smaller craft that, according to his description, were literally in front of the cockpit as he was flying, shining light inside. He got a very drew a very clear description of these objects. Hmm. Uh, it is also true that during that case, and this, this encounter lasted for um, close to a half an hour, that uh, multiple uh, radars tracked it. Air Force radar did track an unknown object near this uh, this airliner at the time of his sighting. 
there's a lot more to that case in terms of uh, statements by an FAA official after the fact uh, by the name of John Callahan who uh, described how the CIA confiscated uh, radar uh, and evidence pertaining to the case. So that's called the uh, the, the JAL uh, 007, I think it's uh, airliner case, and it's it's a very good one. A lot a lot happened with that as well. The pilot, after he reported his uh, encounter, was uh, benched, as it were. He was taken off of the flight line, and it was it was put at a desk job for a couple of years as a punishment for even speaking out. It was only through the intercession of uh, Dr. Richard Haynes, who worked at NASA Ames Research Center that uh, was able to get this pilot reinstated. There's another interesting case from 1986 in the country of Brazil. And we know about this because uh, we have a a U.S. defense memo that describes it in in some pretty good detail. And it describes a scrambling of um, a significant portion of the Brazilian Air Force. A number of fighter jets were scrambled to uh, investigate a large appearance of let me put it this way, an appearance of a large number of UFOs over Brazilian airspace. Um, it's, a, it's a very good case. Um, I don't think that atmospheric phenomena or meteorites explain what happened in Brazil that night. This is in, I think, May of 1986. Um, the Brazilian military itself made some very, very direct statements about the gravity of the situation. And so those are two right there. Uh, there are a number of other very interesting... I Actually... A famous case that I think is is probably deservedly the famous case, and maybe the best case, uh, is one that I alluded to a little earlier in this interview, and that's the 1976 Iranian jet fighter intercept of a UFO over the city of Tehran. This happened not once, but by two F-4 fighter interceptors. It's an incredible case, um, and it's incredible for a number of reasons. A, because of what actually transpired, but B, because of the level of evidence that we have to support its reality. So uh, to make a long story short, this is a famous case. Many people do know about it, but I'll try to recap succinctly here. In September 1976, a number of residents of the city of Tehran, this is in the days of the Shah, when uh, Iran was allied to the U.S., they go out of their houses and they see this very, very bright object over the skies of their city, and a number of these people called the local airport, Marabat Airport. And the uh, traffic controller on duty, the guy on duty, blows off a few of the calls and then eventually says, all right, let me go see what is out there. And he says, I looked out the window and holy smokes, I saw this exactly what people were describing, this very, very intensely bright object that had different colors in there, and I didn't, couldn't identify it at all. So he called... Uh, the uh, nearest Air Force base, spoke to a um, high-ranking, I think he spoke to a general, who then scrambled um, a little later in the first F-4 interceptor jet. Um, Now, we have a four-page U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency document describing this encounter in pretty good detail. We also have a statement of one of the pilots about it afterward, after he became a general. And we also have a radar, uh, excuse me, a satellite tracking of this object on the exact date at the correct, uh, at the exact geographic location by the DSP satellites. So something strange happened there. Uh, The first F-4 gets to within 25 nautical miles of this object, according to the memo. And his, uh, his key navigation instrumentation goes offline. He has to uh, engage in invasive maneuvers 
from this object, and he, he decides to return back to the base. Uh, a short while later, a second F-4 is scrambled. Again, he gets to within a range of approximately 25 nautical miles. He's about to fire a missile at this object. And as just before he fired the missile, the missile system went offline and uh, other uh, instrumentation went offline. And he then saw from the object, and he was describing this, because he was tracking it on his airborne radar as well as seeing it visually, this object detached a smaller object from it. And this smaller object then went on an intercept course of him, of his aircraft. He then engaged in an emergency maneuver to get away from this object, the tight, tight, tight uh, turn. Uh, according to the DIA memo, this object turned inside the arc of his own aircraft. It turned inside his own turning arc. So it made a tighter turn. And then Again, according to the memo, rejoin the mother craft for a perfect rejoin. And really quite extraordinary. This is all in 1976. Uh, there's a bit more involved, but essentially we have to ask ourselves, what technology could do that in 1976, even today, but certainly uh, 33 years ago? I, I don't have an answer to that. There is no official technology that anybody knows about that could have been able to do the things that this object was described to have done. So I think that's, a, that's an exceptional case. Uh, and indeed, we have uh, the statement of, uh, of an unknown uh, military intelligence analyst who wrote, an, except, uh, I'm, I'm an exceptional case or an extraordinary case has all of the ingredients necessary for a proper uh, study of the phenomenon, et cetera, et cetera. So it impressed a lot of people. Um, we know about this case because of, of an interesting moment in American history, and that is the, uh, the advent of the Strengthened Freedom of Information Act. It's the only reason that we really have anything good on this case. Here's what happened. The event was reported in the local Iranian newspaper, in the Tehran newspaper, shortly after it happened, uh, with not a lot of detail, but enough to uh, prompt an American uh, living in uh, Germany at the time, to file a Freedom of Information Act request on this event. Now, Freedom of Information Act had only recently been significantly strengthened through the passage of uh, a, a law through Congress. Uh, we had had FOIA uh, previously in the 1960s, but it didn't have the kind of teeth that allowed for a, a public inquiries of, of uh, matters of public policy like this. So, uh, he filed a FOIA request on it, and to his surprise, this is in during the now the administration of Jimmy Carter by 1977, got a an affirmative response, and uh, these these pages were released to him. You know what happened uh, shortly, you know after the Carter years in the early 1980s under Ronald Reagan is that freedom of information was significantly curtailed. Uh, a lot of the FOIA stipulations were were uh, weakened from the public point of view. Uh, fees became much, much more expensive. Uh, response time did not have to be prompt as they were under the presidency of Jimmy Carter. You know, even in the Carter years, of course, it was, wasn't all beer and Skittles. I mean, there, there was a lot of obstruction. There was a lot of uh, uh, dragging of feet, and not all the documents came out that people wanted. But enough came out in the late 70s to make it very, very clear and this is another theme of my book, to make it very clear that 
there was a, a mass of evidence, of documentary evidence that existed that people had not been previously aware of. But really, the late 70s is something I consider the golden era of the Freedom of Information Act. It's really when we got our the most and best uh, documents that we have on UFOs dealing with the military side of it. But that's the Iranian case. It's it's just an absolutely fascinating case any way you look at it. And I would say that um, I would present that case to any review board as very, very strong evidence for the anomalous and also technological nature of the UFO phenomenon as belonging to somebody's technology. Hmm. You know, any object that can disable uh, two F-4 fighter interceptors in succession at a range of 25 nautical miles, it's got to have some respect. Mm-hmm. And what was the Mexican case that you were going to tell before I interrupted you? Oh, well, this this is a very little-known case. I, I found it very, very interesting, though, and um, it took place uh, – I don't have it actually in front of me on my screen right now, but I'm, I'm going off of memory. Um, it uh, took place in, in May of 1975, and it, it involved a, a young Mexican pilot. He was uh, – working toward, uh, I guess, full certification as a pilot. So you have to do a lot of, get a, fl- a lot of flight time in. So he's flying a, a fairly small, kind of a Cessna type of aircraft out of Mexico City. And uh, he encounters what he describes and what is seen by traffic controllers are seeing the same thing, apparently. These three flying saucers, apparently. Uh, basically flying saucer type objects. Small, though. They're not huge. One of them actually bumps his airplane, according to what he said. And scared the bejesus out of him and he um meanwhile the traffic controllers are are watching this as well and he he comes in for landing and he's all shaken up over it it was interesting because it occurred on the same day that there was another weird encounter in texas uh i think central southern texas you know when you look at the, at the map it's it's really not all that far away it's the same day a couple of hours later this truck driver in Texas sees describes what is almost an identical description to one of the objects described by uh, the Mexican pilot, uh, a, a kind of a classic flying saucer-shaped object that flew over his car and uh, disrupted the uh, the engine. So he, he shut shut the car off or lifted the car a little bit off the ground. I think um, he said he was actually able to look through a glass top like a dome and, and see non-human kind of alien type creatures in there. Um, I mean, they're, they're both, in a sense, cases that could be tossed away, although the Mexican case was investigated by a number of established researchers, including J. Allen Hynek, who went down to Mexico to interview this pilot. Uh, that case also had a men in black story to follow up on it. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of interesting elements to it. But but here's the interesting thing to me about all of this. All right, it's It's a it was May 23rd, 1975, I believe. I'm still not looking at it on my book. but um, You know, I mean, almost if you look at the density of UFO reports, this could have been any – you could throw a, a dart on a calendar of the year. And no matter what day you land on, I, I would I'd be very confident that you would find a UFO encounter that would be pretty darn interesting. And that if it got any kind of significant media follow-up – would be enough to generate um, a good amount of, of forward motion on this. But what happens is these cases, all of them, I mean, most of them are very fascinating, got little to no mainstream media follow-up. They're just, you know, throw them away. They're not worth it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I'm not so sure. I think that's a, that's a very wrong attitude by the mainstream media. Um, 
And I, I, I brought that out as, uh, in my book as, as an example of, of the kinds of things that actually go on on any day of the week. If you go to the National UFO Reporting Center today, I mean, you'll find over 5,000 cases a year that Peter Davenport puts up there. Now, you know, obviously, the vast majority of those cases never get investigated. Uh, all we have is someone typing in what they claim happened. So they're what you call raw reports. Nevertheless, um, I've read a lot of those raw reports. There's a lot of detail in them. I've done my investigation on a couple of them myself. I got to know one of the witnesses, a Canadian uh, person, very well as a result of what she saw. She saw a perfect triangle in the year 2003. And uh, there's not a shred of doubt in my mind that she's absolutely accurate about what she saw and truthful. Uh, there's a lot of these in, in the, uh, that get reported every year. Uh, they just get no media follow-up. Mm-hmm. It's one of the fascinating things about our, this phenomenon of ours is that it's, uh, I think, in the first sentence of my new book, UFOs are everywhere and nowhere, in the, in the skies of our Earth and also in the minds of people. They're everywhere and they're nowhere, and, and in the sense that they are everywhere, they're every day, they're in the skies, they're uh, low to the ground, they're even in the oceans, uh, but they're nowhere in the sense that they are almost effectively absent from any kind of true, continuous, extended coverage in our mainstream media. Rich, do you, um, I'm sure you don't cover these cases in your book, but in the the course of of researching the book and in the time period that it covers, what would you say are, I mean, we gave two interesting cases, what would be the two most damaging cases to the overall subject, uh, in your opinion, from the time period that you looked at? Uh, Gosh, I don't know. Um, it, you know, it depends on how you look at it. Come on, Rich, throw is, a rock, will you? Come is, on. Is the, Bob, is the Bob Lazar entry into ufology damaging? Well, maybe, probably. Mm-hmm. I guess to a large extent, it, it's done damage. Um, is the um, is the entry of the MJ12 documents into ufology damaging? Um, probably to a large extent. What is, you know, I, I spent a lot of time trying to understand the MJ-12 documents, and this is as good a point as any, which I could maybe uh, take a pause here and, and really dig into it. The MJ-12 documents, in my view, are very probably some form of disinformation. Now, that's not the same as, as saying that they're fake or hoaxes. Uh, some people, I mean, researchers that I actually have a very large respect for, um, uh, people like Robert Hastings. I, I like Robert Hastings. Um, but he, he calls the MJ-12 documents a hoax. I think that's wrong. I think um, the way to look at the MJ-12 documents is that as disinformation, they have, they, they, um, they have truth and they have, they have false information in there, both. I mean, no disinformation is going to be useful if it's all BS. No one, no one would be able to find it no one would find it compelling if it was 100% baloney. You've got to have valid information in there. Um, so, for example, when the MJ-12 documents were, were leaked out in late 1984, uh, researchers like Stanton Friedman found that there was actually a lot of useful information that provided leads for, for, for really good follow-up. The follow-up that turned out to be... Um, quite, quite interesting, and that these leads came from the MJ-12 documents, and I'm talking, of course, about 
uh, The Secret Life of Donald Menzel, the Harvard astronomer, who was listed in the MJ-12 documents as one of its members. When people saw Menzel's name in 1980, you know, in late 80s when they started seeing this document, they thought it was a, a joke. Menzel was the premier debunker of UFOs back in his day. Um, and yet, as it turns out, Stan Friedman did research on Menzel as a result of his inclusion in these documents and found in, in the Harvard archives that Menzel lived a double life. He was a Harvard astronomer, and he had very high security clearances, uh, worked very, very extensively with the NSA at the highest levels. In fact, had written to John F. Kennedy when Kennedy was elected president, offering his services uh, to the Kennedy administration and, and talking at great length about his crypto clearances and so forth. This is a side of Menzel no one had any knowledge of. And uh, it, was, it was found specifically because of the MJ-12 documents. The dates of the documents themselves also turned out to be uh, very, very interesting and intriguing. The date of September 24, 1947 date that Harry Truman allegedly signed the document. That was an important date, and it turned out to be significant and, and turned out to be right if Truman was going to meet with James Forrestal and Vannevar Bush. It was the only date for almost an, a, a year-long period on which the three men actually are known to have met. It was quite interesting that that date was chosen. The date of November 18, 1952, for the uh, alleged Eisenhower briefing, is also significant and also turned out to be um, a very intriguing date. And so without going into all of the reasons why the MJ-12 documents might be legitimate, then there are reasons why they are very probably not fully legitimate. Okay. I mean, what actually happened with MJ-12? Uh, a year and a half before those documents were mailed out to the researchers, Jamie Shandere and Bill Moore, um, uh, researcher Linda Moulton Howe met with uh, Air Force uh, Special Agent Richard Doty. That took place in um, uh, March 1983. April, excuse me, April 1983. She met with him because it had been arranged by uh, attorney Peter Gerson, who was involved in research and freedom of information. And uh, and Linda Howe was researching uh, some cases that it was said Doty might have some information on. So she goes to Kirtland Air Force Base where he's working. This is in Air Force Office of Special Investigation. And what happens there, you know, depends on who you listen to, Linda Howe or Richard Doty. But uh, it's obvious that they met. It's obvious Doty showed her something. Linda Howe described at length a kind of presidential briefing document that he showed her something very, very similar to what we would later come to know as the MJ-12 documents. Similar, but not the same. So the documents that Linda Howe, Linda Moulton Howe has shown talked about a crash of a UFO in Aztec, New Mexico. Talked about multiple UFO crashes at multiple times uh, through the 1940s and 50s. You think that was a disinformation testing ground? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, probably, yes. This is what Doty says. Mm -hmm. Richard Doty to this day says that we were feeding Linda Howe, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, this information and uh, expecting her to go public with it. And she actually didn't. Mm -hmm. Linda Moulton Howe showed uh, a level of discipline that uh, very few researchers, I think, would have shown, frankly. Uh, she's taken a lot of heat over this, too. And I, I think uh, really without, without justification, she sat on those documents for six years before she even mentioned them in public. Um, I think that's that's a very long period of time indeed. But uh, 
the fact was that she was shown documents that were rather different in certain ways than the documents that were mailed out 19 months later to Jamie Chandray. And so the question is, now they were obviously mailed from the same place. I mean, documents that were mailed to Chandray were postmarked in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which of course is where currently an Air Force Base is. So I think it's a reasonable assumption to assume they're from the same source. Not only that, but I talked a little bit to Timothy Good about his connection to the MJ-12 documents. Uh, you know, what had happened was the, the uh, documents were sent to Moore and Chandray, and they also, like Linda Moulton Howe, sat on those documents for several years. Okay, they were not going to, um, to publish, publish them prematurely. Uh, the attitude that Moore had, at least this is what he states, is that he wanted to make sure that they were thoroughly checked out um, before he was going to go public with them. But the problem was um, his handlers at, at Air Force Intelligence were obviously becoming, um, you know, antsy. <laughs> they were becoming a little bit impatient with all this, and they wanted these documents out. So they went to Tim Good. And I asked Timothy Good, did who approached, who gave you your version of the MJ-12 documents, which you got in early 1987. Tim Good has never, to this day, publicly stated where he got those from. Um, and I, a little over a year ago, two years ago, I asked him point blank, privately. I said, look, it's been 20 years. All right, are you ever going to mention where you got these from? There are a lot of us who'd like to know. There's a lot of people who I think would benefit from knowing where you got these documents from so that we could do follow-up analysis and investigation. I said, did they come from Richard Doty? And he said, no, but they came, they came from Americans who he said he believed were connected with Doty. Mm -hmm. So that's Tim Good's opinion. So can I, I this, this isn't my next book, so I'm not really... Yeah. Can, I, can I ask this? Because I, uh, I have to say I'm fairly ignorant about Doty. I, I I was kind of warned off of him years ago, but uh, uh, when he is talking about this kind of stuff, like, yeah, we were feeding uh, Linda this, this garbage and hope that she would go public with it and all that. Does anybody ever ask him or has he ever answered, why did you do this, Richard Doty? Why did you, what was the purpose of this? Um you know, I mean, it seems like a fairly obvious question. If, if you're yeah, putting yeah, out yeah, information, absolutely. why the hell did you do it? What were you putting out this information for? Who ordered it? You know, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm sure, but let, let me preface by saying I wouldn't believe anything that came out of his mouth anyway. But I'm just curious what his response was to that question, if you've actually asked him that. I had a long email correspondence with Richard Doty for a while, and um, – um, he's he's very tough to get a straight answer out of. I'll, I'll say this. And I say it with with a certain level of respect for the man. A lot of people criticize Doty because uh, he's he's really helped to muddy up the field of ufology, and that's true. But you know, Richard Doty's a guy who's doing his job at all times in his career. Let's just get it straight right now. He was with the United States Air Force. He was a special agent, and he was doing his job. Okay, and it, it's you know most people. Maybe nearly everyone who would be placed in his position would probably have to do the same thing. And so this was his job. Um, now, 
what it looks like uh, based on, on the answers that I got from him and based on what Linda Moulton Howe described in the meeting. And by the way, Linda Moulton Howe is someone who has a near photographic memory. Uh, it's, she has an extraordinary memory. Uh, I've met very few people uh, like Linda who can actually just pull things out. And when you hear her describe things, you just know she's she's got it right. She, uh, after the meeting with Dodie, she wasn't allowed to write things down. It was a classic look-but-don't-touch scenario yeah. in which, um, <clears throat> you know, it's a, it's a very typical disinformation type of ploy. But in Linda, Linda Moulton House case, she has a memory that is exceptional. So right after the meeting, she went back to her hotel room, her hotel room and wrote everything down that she felt she could remember. So I have absolutely no question in believing her when she describes her, her account of the meeting. You know, her feeling was uh, that Dodie was authorized by his superiors to show her some information as a prelude to a kind of disclosure on the UFO reality. Okay, this is what he told her. This is what she says he told her. That is not what he says today that he told her. Okay, so mm-hmm. let's keep that straight. But I, I tend to believe Linda Moulton Howe on this before I believe Richard Doty on that. So, so then the real question is, well, okay, so is he, was he telling her the truth? Was this a kind of disclosure that then was aborted? Uh, because really what happened was he... Uh, gives us this, this, all this information, and then with promises of where we're going to give you some footage of, of the landing of a UFO. Uh, we're going to try to arrange this for you. We're going to help you out. You can do this HBO special, and you know we're going, to, we're going to really work to make this proper so the U.S. government can have some kind of control over the process. But then what happened was she goes back to uh, her home, and, and there's essentially no follow-up at all. And then the next thing she knows is that Dodie was taken off the case. And nearly for the whole rest of the year, she actually had no contact from anyone at Kirtland, all through 83 and 84. Uh, they essentially just dropped Linda Moulton Howe. Now, see, isn't, so it's, a very, it's a strange thing. It's a very strange well, thing. She did. I mean, that, that to me is absurdly familiar in that you'd be given something, you'd be given a piece of evidence or you'd be shown something and said there will be follow-up. And then the hopes of her going out and saying, I've met with this man, here's what's coming, here's what I was shown that I can remember from memory, and then she'd be left holding the bag. Uh, I, I mean, I've <clears throat> I've been told a number of times by different people that there are there are people out there who will in whatever capacity, whether it's it's government funded or not, will actively try to frame up what they perceive to be up and coming ufologists or well standing ufologists, uh, feed them good stuff for I don't know three or four months, and then give them one uh, after their you know after this information is coming out on the ufologist point of being genuinely unknown stuff. I mean, well, whether this is happening to whatever. I mean, then you're left holding the bag of that, you know, I mean. I think that's right. But the the, the other side, well, this happened to Bill Moore as well, all through the 1980s. Bill Moore was fed some garbage and he was fed some good information too, it appears. Mm -hmm. Um, And this happened to Linda Moulton. I'm sure it's happened to many of uh, the researchers out there. Uh, It may have happened to me. I've had people approach me. Uh, The thing with me is that I've just not, you know, all anyone can do is you have to be cautious. 
Right. And if you get if you get information that is not confirmable, then you'd better damn well be careful about how you deal with it. That that's really all you can say. Right. On the other hand, we have to keep in mind something. Okay, um, if you've got you know if we presume that we have a, this massive event going on of all of these UFOs, and, that, and that let's we, if we assume it's real, and if we assume therefore that there's a lot of people who are in the know. Because let's face it, I mean, if, if, there's, if there's a group that's like Majestic or an MJ-12, we have to assume it's not just 12 guys uh, pulling all the strings, like, you know, they're marionettes. Obviously, you would have to have a large infrastructure to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, American history has a hist- we have our own history of secret infrastructures having developed. The NSA uh, existed for many years in total secrecy. The NRO existed for three decades in near total secrecy. America has a long history of creating a secret of secret agencies that are quite substantial and yet are completely off the grid. So let's assume if there's a majestic organization that is charged with dealing with the presence of extraterrestrials, okay? That is a fairly substantial organization at this time. We would assume that it has cover of, of the various military branches, as I'm assuming mostly Navy, and probably a lot of private contractors, okay, service cover for this, I would think. And so we can also assume within such an organization, though, that, that it's not monolithic. Nothing is monolithic. No bureaucracy truly is. There are always factions. Whether you go back 2,000 years ago to Caesar and Pompey, to today, there are factions. Elites do not agree. Um, there are always differences of opinion. And so, therefore, uh, it's reasonable, I think, to assume that there are going to be legitimate leaks. I have met many people that I am pretty damn sure are real insiders. Some of them are famous people, you know, with Wikipedia and then the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, who are very well known around the world. So I want a Wikipedia page, by the way. All I'm, I don't have my own page, and I don't want to write my own. <laughs> so write my page. <laughs> but the thing is, these people, uh, I've, I've been approached by some famous people. Um, like? I, have, I, I could never. <laughs> so I'm very sorry. but Just trying. The thing is, um, I've been told things that are, are um, very serious that talk very explicitly about deeply secret black programs that are charged with studying alien technology and bodies. Now, you know, when you have someone tell you this, it's not proof. I fully grant that. But when the person is a well-known entity to you, when you can research their career, when you spend time with them, um, when you really feel like you get to know them, well, then it, it has a different impact. It, it's very easy for me to say when I, I look at some other researchers, say, oh, man, you just got taken in so easily. But I'll, I'll tell you right now, when you're in a situation, you're face-to-face with somebody, and you really try to size them up, and you, you know a few things about them, it becomes very persuasive, and you have to really restrain yourself not to, not to go crazy, not to, not to just dive in. Um, I'm proud to say that I've done that so far, and I hope to continue to do that. Well, well, what do you think would happen if you did? Just say, right now, tell us. If I outed somebody. If you outed somebody right now, don't you think that's the perfect setup? We got Dolan to take the bait. He just announced it on this show. Now it's going right. to proliferate everywhere. Right. So your Mr. X is then going to back up and go, 
I've never seen Richard Dolan in my life. Well, right. And you're a UFO researcher. <laughs> He's a colonel or a whatever. Well, the, the question then would be who do you believe? But no, your point is a good one. I it's simply the fact that I would not – I'm not taking the bait and I, I wouldn't. Um, but I don't believe that that's the case. And I've, I've spoken to a lot of a lot of individuals now on a very private basis. A lot of them said, please never, ever, ever use my name. gotten that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, all I can say is on a personal level, you talk to some of these people, they're, they – I think they would probably persuade you as well. Um, so back back to the case of uh, of you know agents that are probably out there to to mess up UFO research. Yes, I have, I have no doubt that that is true. And so on the other hand, I I suspect I believe that there are also insiders who are there actually telling the truth. Uh, one of the big parts of of the research aspect of my book talking about the researchers, that is, is the story of Leonard Stringfield. Now, Leonard Stringfield was a researcher, very, became very prominent in the 70s and 80s. Stringfield had actually flown during World War II. It was, uh, I never had the pleasure to meet the man. He, he died um, around the time that I was getting involved in the research. Uh, he was a real gentleman, from what I understand, a very gracious man. But the thing about Stringfield is that he uh, wrote a book, came out in 1977, called Situation Red, the UFO Siege, I think. Um, <clears throat> it's a pretty good book. The, the thing that was noteworthy about the book, the, the reason it made it a, a, a historical UFO book, was that he talked about crash retrievals, uh, stories of crash retrievals that he had come across in his research career. It wasn't a big part of the book. It was actually a fairly small part of the book. But it was enough, and it was in a context where he, he talked about them in a serious vein, which was new, in 1977. Now, 1977 was also the first year of Jimmy Carter's presidency. It was an important year in the history of ufology because there were many people in 1977 who believed, based on statements President Carter had made, that there just might be some kind of presidential disclosure on UFOs. I think that was a mistaken belief, very much so. I don't think there was ever a chance of this, and I try to say why in my book. But the point is that a lot of people believed it was going to happen. So the confluence of these two things, Stringfield's book and the presidency of Jimmy Carter and the new uh, attitude with freedom of information, a lot of people then came to Stringfield out of the blue. Widows of, uh, you know, whose husbands had told them years ago about how he had guarded an alien body for three hours at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Or guys still alive who said, I was present at this retrieval of a, of a UFO. Or, or a doctor who at the time was in New York City who said, yes, at one point I was involved in an autopsy of a non-human uh, alien being. Stringfield got to know that guy fairly well. Stringfield spent um, a great deal of time writing about this, being careful. He didn't give away any identities. And he got a lot of criticism for that, as a matter of fact, from uh, fellow researchers. But Stringfield's attitude was, you know, I can't give these people up. They came to me in in confidence and I have to respect them. I'm doing my best at sharing their data on a limited basis with trusted researchers and we're trying to vet them and that's that's all I can do. But the point is, you know, what was the case with these people who came up to Stringfield? It's been argued that some of them were definite hoaxers. That's probably true. But Stringfield dealt with uh, upwards of uh, 70, 80 witnesses. Uh, The hoaxers come later. They always come later. 
they always come after you've developed a certain critical mass after you go public with certain information and then you get hoaxers coming in to try to, to, to stir up the pot and create a lot of mud. But uh, it is my opinion that Stringfield was getting legitimate leaks from the inside. These weren't all high-level people. In fact, most of them were not high-level people. But there were people who had some kind of intersection at some point in their military careers with this phenomenon. So, um, you know, when you're dealing with with sources that are not confirmable, I mean, you have a choice. You can walk a, the, a very, very straight and narrow path in which you stick only to confirmed data and don't even speculate about the data that, that's not confirmed. You can do that, and there are many people who do that. You can go to the other end and just dive into the unconfirmed waters and just let it all hang out and everything goes. Okay, I, I certainly don't do that either. But I try to ride a middle ground, and I try to ride one that I think is based on reason and as much common sense as I can bring to bear. Mm-hmm. I have to assume that uh, you know there are going to be leaks. I have, you have to judge each case on its own basis. But you always have to know what the known facts are. You've got to make sure you don't confuse... The speculation from what is known facts kind of got off on a tangent there. I hope I hope that sounded relevant. No, I, I mean it's it's. Uh, I mean the problem that I have, and I'm, we mentioned this, and we're going to say it again because I think it, it bears mentioning that you know when you talk to these insiders, quote unquote. For me, as 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 a guy, uh, you know, hearing this, I'm the the first thing that that sprung to mind to me years ago when we were talking about somebody like even Bob Lazar maybe is that these are people who claim to have been involved in one way or another with the perceived cover up if there is such a thing which i you know i, I know this this may sound uh uh like heresy to you but i i'm not so totally convinced that there's a quote unquote cover up of anything i think there's a cover up of a lack of knowledge if anything else i have to wonder when you get these people coming forward to you does it ever do you ever think you know these are the very people who are quote unquote covering up or having to keep compartmentalized secrets or may have been exposed to something exotic but doesn't necessarily mean that it's quote unquote alien um i mean that has to cross your mind when yes, you have course. this kind of thing come up and and just to kind of you know, tell you where I'm where I'm at with the the whole cover up thing, um, and I don't talk about this much uh, anymore because I was threatened years ago, and it put me off of this subject for a number of years, um, which was you know kind of in league with the whole government knows and they won't tell us that sort of thinking, which was very much where I was at that time. Um, I don't think I think a lot of what you see in some FOIAs, I'm not saying all, but some of them, and uh, when we talk about disinformation and we talk about these people who are, uh, you know, very deep into this subject uh, in, in an official capacity that are coming forward privately to different researchers, including yourself, I think that the bigger worry is not disclosure. I think the bigger worry for these people is us learning that they don't know what it is, that they cannot control it, and that there is no defense for it. You know, to admit... Well, uh, why, why is you know, that not a cover-up? How is that Well, it, it, it is a cover-up, but not in the sense of, you know, knowing the reality and keeping the reality from the reality us. Being, you know? No, the reality being... I mean, you're, you're talking exactly about a yeah. cover-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a cover-up. 
yeah. that, that they're going to kick our ass because we can't compete with this. <laughs> right. And that's what you're really saying. Well, well, and that's but, probably the case. Well, I think there's a lot of people who view the cover up as the government knows everything about this. And I think they may know about well, here, it in the sense of I, having better data right, and knowing me, that it's a reality. Let me jump in because I, I, I'm very glad you brought this up. It is absolutely my opinion that that formal government channels are out of the loop on this, a hundred percent out of the loop. Congress completely, but even the executive branch of of, uh, of our government is out of the loop. The U.S. president. I mean, can we really honestly think that a United States president knows anything about this topic? Other, I mean, you know, other than maybe getting a bare bones briefing, even if that. I mean, there are. Literally now, probably at least 200 special access programs within the Department of Defense. There were 150 estimated estimated about 10 years ago. That was before the presidency of George W. Bush. God knows how many there are now. Mm-hmm. It's literally – it would be impossible truly to brief the president on all of the secret operations going on because there's just not enough time in a day. The president is, is a spokesperson. He's a sales rep. He's got to sell you certain things, and he's got to meet with people. He's got to kiss the babies. He's got to travel here and there and meet with foreign leaders. For him to have the time even, I mean just in terms of pure logistics, hours in a day, there's not enough. Well, he's also a temporary employee. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So so the point is that forget UFOs for a minute. One thing that I really try to do is to understand – what I feel is the true structure of power in this world. I mean, who is there? Is there anyone who's actually got more power than the president? Is there a group that's got more power? Is it the nefarious Bilderberg group? Are they real? Well, yes, they're real. Do they meet once a year? Yes, they do. Who are they? Well, we kind of know who they are. They're David Rockefeller and the people around him. Okay, do they exercise? greater power than that of the office of the presidency. And I think the answer to that, is, to that is yes, they do. David Rockefeller, you could almost say personally appointed almost every president covered under the period of my, new, of my forthcoming book. Uh, Gerald Ford, um, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, oh, I skipped Reagan. Reagan, Reagan is, a, is a tough case. Reagan was always a Rockefeller man while he was governor of California, uh, who took a kind of anti-Rockefeller stance while he was campaigning for the presidency. Um, but then, of course, he got shot in 1981 by a friend of the Bush family, John Hinckley Jr. Uh, and, of course, Bush was always a man who worked with the Rockefellers. I mean, it's just too crazy. Well, the point when, that I'm making is when, – when, when you talk about Rockefeller, explain to us why he would have that type of power. David Rockefeller is probably throughout his life probably the single most important powerful man in the world. Who's more powerful than David Rockefeller? Why? He what meets with more heads of state. Control over the Chase Bank of New York for one, mm-hmm. you know, for, for eons and eons. Uh, air, you know, the, he's certainly the intellectual uh, heir to the Rockefeller dynasty of all the Rockefeller brothers. David was the one really was the guy pulling the strings. Even even Nelson Rockefeller was always the, the political Rockefeller. Um, was really not quite at the level that David Rockefeller was and is to this day because David Rockefeller is still alive. But uh, it is absolutely true. David Rockefeller ran 
uh, was one of the key people, let's say, involved in running the annual Bilderberg meetings, uh, which is, let us you know, be straight with us, is comprised of invitation only of the top really 100, 150 invitees from around the world in the world of industry, finance, and politics, media, uh, a meeting every year that's more significant than the G20 and yet which gets no press coverage ever. I mean, ever, even though, of course, press is invited every year. You always have representatives of the Washington Post and the Times that are there. They just never report on this. Now, I mean, any normal uh, citizen of what is supposed to be the American Republic would observe such a meeting taking place and wonder, hey, these are the most powerful people in the world. Why don't we get to know what they talk about? It's a fair question to ask. So the, the point is that there are what we've gone through in the last generation, really through the 80s and 90s in particular, was a, a kind of silent transformation of the political structure of our world. What we saw was the mortal wounding of the nation state as a, as a viable unit. And we have moved into the creation of uh, a global economy and a global world. The problem is that Political realities always move far ahead of our mental reality. People are always living in the past. You know, when, when the last Roman emperor was deposed in the year 476, the emperor, the, the boy Honorius, people didn't say, oh, well, Roman Empire's over. That's it, people. Pack it in. No. The barbarian king who took his place as king of Italy continued the fiction that the Roman Empire was still around. And people for another century... Assumed, oh yeah, Roman Empire, sure, that's what we're in. It was only many, many years later that historians looking back were able to identify really accurately too that here's really when it ended. People, in other words, live through momentous things all the time without understanding what's happening. We are going through that as well. The death of the nation state. You know, the creation of international structures like uh, NAFTA. Uh, changes in, in the World Bank policy and the IMF during that period of time. And a lot of other things that uh, get, that we push through and so forth, that enabled a diminution of citizen power, traditional citizen power, or sovereign entities of their nation in favor of transnational corporate entities run by whom? Basically run by uh, these people who gather together at their secret meetings every year. It's not that hard to figure it out. So my point is simply, and you look at the presidency of Jimmy Carter as a classic case in point of a man who was literally almost lifted up you know, by David Rockefeller and plunked into the White House. Uh, this is not conspiracy theory. It's open history. You can go look it up yourself. David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski created the Trilateral Commission. Carter, as governor of Georgia, Georgia was an enthusiastic trilateralist. They decided to summon him for a meeting and to decide whether they wanted to put him into the White House. Carter impressed them, and they said yes, and Brzezinski, of course, became his national security advisor. Brzezinski, of course, is now the, one of the chief advisors of Barack Obama. Um, you know, the, so, <clears throat> so that's a completely UFO-free analysis there. But it's really not hard, I think, to see that the presidency is an office – that is very much beholden to international financial power interests. Now, to say that, now, now, now we take the UFO aspect of it. 
All right. And if we go into a scenario that uh, not only are UFOs real, but maybe we've recovered some technology. Now, you, you may or may not find that persuasive, but I find it persuasive. And again, in, in my book, I think that I provide very good evidence as to why I believe that. But the point is that if there was retrieval of technology, physical artifacts, okay, that takes the cover-up to a very different level. Now we're not just covering up the existence of these other beings. We're covering up the fact that we got some really cool technology that we may want to keep from our adversaries like the Soviets. So you really got to keep the lid on it. How do you do that? Well, at the same time, you want to study it and you want to try to replicate it, presumably. So one thing that you would have to do at some point, it's inevitable, is you would pass it to private industry, secure private industry, guys you can trust, of course, guys who are read into the program with their own security clearances. The reason that's an attractive option is manifold. On the one hand, private industry, the contractors, are the people who study and research and make the things for the defense industry to begin with. You know, the Army may have some good scientists working there, but basically if you want something done right, you're going to go to Boeing or Lockheed or General Electric or one of your contractors where they've got the guys who can research this and maybe hope to replicate some version of what you've got. The other reason it's an attractive option is because uh, the U.S. government itself has been dominated for at least a century by the leaders of industry and finance anyway. They, the, the government people come from that world. That's their world. It's the world that they know best. Um, and it's the world to which they will return when they leave government service. You know, generals who retire often get hired on as senior VPs for these defense contractors at a very nice salary. And then another reason it's important is that it helps with secrecy. Once the technology uh, goes into the possession of a Lockheed or a Boeing or a General Dynamics or General Electric or Raytheon, then it becomes not just classified, but proprietary. It brings a whole new order of secrecy to the subject, and it becomes a really nice moneymaker too. And once you start making money off of this goose that lays golden eggs, uh, I don't really see much of an incentive ever for revealing to the world what you've got. Why would you ever want to do that? And then, of course, the, the farther into this secret you go, the more difficult, not less, the more difficult it becomes to reveal this secret because you've now got generation after generation of a secret that has evolved and morphed into its own probably massive uh, off-the-grid infrastructure, very likely. This is the scenario that I, I think has happened, and I think it's perfectly fair to speculate on that scenario as long as we distinguish it from the known historical record. This is this is what I've done. Well, then I have a question, which is, um, you know, if Rockefeller knows all or near to all of uh, what there is to know about this stuff, uh, why would he still be funding sort of rudimentary by those standards ufological research? Well, David Rockefeller hasn't dropped a penny into ufology. You, you're probably referring to Lawrence Rockefeller, who's who's now dead. Uh, Lawrence Rockefeller did fund ufology. But, you know, keep in mind a couple of things here. The Rockefeller brothers were a pretty tight group. Uh, but Lawrence Rockefeller was always considered a maverick in that family. Um, he was an aviator, uh, was always interested in issues of aviation. 
But there's another reason why they might. The Rockefeller estates were at Pocantico in, in uh, lower New York. Uh, that's like their, their family headquarters. And uh, if you recall, in the early 1980s, the so-called Hudson Valley wave of sightings, um, you have enormous boomerang and triangular and classically shaped flying saucers that were seen flying over that region. Low altitude, hovering, doing who knows what, according to thousands of witnesses. Not hundreds, but thousands. So, now if a UFO flies over your house, Jeremy, or my house, we're not going to be in much of a position, I should think, to do much about it. That's not many chips I can call in to the government and say, hey, could you look into this for me? If, however, your name is Rockefeller and you got things flying over your house, uh, you might have a different take on the matter. Uh, Lawrence Rockefeller didn't just fund uh, UFO research. He also had an initiative with, with President Bill Clinton. And uh, from what the record now shows us pretty clearly is that he, as a campaign contributor to Clinton, um, expected some kind of forward motion on the topic of UFOs and some kind of openness from the White House. Just why Lawrence Rockefeller felt as he did is, is not something that I, I'm not really, – I don't know if I can answer that question. Well, I mean, maybe when I, maybe when I deal – If the structure of power is such that he's the one who's actually in control and Clinton is the temp – why, why wouldn't he just know? Why would he go to Clinton for anything? It's not that he wants answers. You know, when you go to the president for anything, it's because you want action. So um, he wanted action. Now, what was the action that he wanted? That's a good question. Hmm. He uh, Overtly, according to the, the correspondence that we have, he wanted the president to uh, initiate a kind of review of the available UFO evidence. The book that's uh, now available on paperback, the, um, the best UFO evidence edited by uh, Don Berliner, is a result uh, actually of the Rockefeller Initiative. Um, it's a, it was a collection of what were considered to be best cases that were then put together. These were going to go to Congress to be, uh, to be part of a briefing. And what ended up happening, this will be the subject of, of my uh, third book here, but... Uh, in 1993-94, not just Lawrence Rockefeller, but uh, uh, the Roswell case was getting a lot of momentum at this point. Uh, a number of witnesses were being videotaped, and were, the uh, effort was being made to gather together a kind of slam-dunk body of evidence that was going to be presented to, uh, to the government, to Congress. The Air Force at that point stepped in. No one asked the Air Force to do this, and they jumped in and, and initiated their own so-called study of the Roswell event, and that's when they came up with their mogul balloon hypothesis. And in fact, they beat to the punch the General Accounting Office, which was formally charged with investigating the Roswell event. The GAO didn't come out with their report until a good year after the Air Force did. Um, the GAO did find that records that they were trying to find were, were missing, that there was obstruction throughout from the Pentagon and so forth. The Air Force, however, beat them to the punch by a year and just said, um, oh, yeah, well, apparently there were things that people noticed. Um, it was um, the crash of a, of a balloon apparatus known as Mogul. But uh, the point being about Rockefeller is what were his motives, Jeremy? Don't know exactly. Hmm. Was he genuinely interested in, in UFOs? Seems that he was. Why was he pushing for openness? This is something that I don't have the answer to yet. Maybe, maybe Grant Cameron has a better take on it than I do. 
uh, I'll, I certainly, I can assure you, I'll be digging into this in a lot more detail uh, in just a couple of months when I revisit this. I've got a lot of notes on, on Rockefeller now, but I'll be having to write about him before long. Great. Well, we're, uh, we're sort of coming into the 15-minute home stretch, if you will. Um, so one thing I'd like to cover that we, we did the last go-round uh, that the audio gets screwed up on uh, is give you a chance to speak to the uh, sort of brouhaha that bubbled over after Alfred Weber had published um, a thing in the examiner.com ah, about you. Yes, yes. If you'd like to explain that to the audience and then answer it, that would be great. Yeah, it's too bad that uh, the last one that we did wasn't there because I dropped a few F-bombs, if I recall. Did I, did I do that? Feel free to punch them in here if you'd like. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't usually roll like that, but um, not in public. I was not happy with Alfred's article, that's certainly for sure. Um, not not because I, I'm not a friend of Laura Nightyasik. I consider her a friend. Uh, Laura is one of these people that I... I consider to be a very extraordinary individual, and uh, I think there's a lot of misinformation about her uh, out on the internet. Uh, I spent enough time with Laura to get to know her personality and to get to know what what she's actually like. And and one thing about Laura, who yes, who does use a Ouija board, and she's used one for I don't know, like 15 years or more, in which she gets what she what she says seem to be messages from these beings that uh, are called the Cassiopeians, which essentially are humans, people from the future. Okay. Uh, now, that sounds kind of crazy. She's been doing this for 15 years. She's had a lot of people doing this with her in a large group. I know many of the people who have done this with her. Uh, we're talking about very, I think, very level-headed people. Very level-headed. Uh, down-to-earth. Laura herself is one of the most down-to-earth people I've ever known. And that's no lie. And she's also a very brilliant person. So I was asked to do a forward to her book called High Strangeness. And I said, yes, I'll, I'll do it. Um, I will do it for you. And I don't mind. I, I do not regret that I did it. I stand by what I wrote. I did not say that I know for sure that what she's doing is legitimate. What I said is that I feel very confident in saying that she's an honest person who is not um, you know, trying to deceive people in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but anyway, so Alfred Weber read that, found, got a copy of the book, I guess, and read my forward, and got very excited about it. And Alfred writes for, uh, he's got his own column with the examiner.com series out there on the web. And uh, I was looking for his next story and decided, here's my next story. And uh, there was no nuance to anything Alfred said, let's put it that way. Uh, this is this is my complaint to him. I said to him immediately after the story because the headline was I forget. It's like famed UFO historian says uh, reptilians are here to eat humanity, or you know, what, what was it something like that? Right? <laughs> yeah. I just I looked at that and I cringed. I fell off my chair thinking, oh God, Alfred, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to ruin me? I really I was so mad. I thought, are you trying to destroy uh, my reputation? Of course, look, let's not give him too much credit here. I mean, I wrote what I did. And and even when I wrote it, before Alfred did his article, some people were aware of it and had commented on it. And were really, well, you guys, I'm sure both of you were wondering, you know, what happened to Rich Dolan? Uh, <laughs> has he lost it? 
<laughs> but no, look, I've I have not changed. I'm the same then as I am now, as I was ten years ago, in certain basic attitudes that I have about this phenomenon. I always try to be careful, but but to be careful is not the same thing as being rigid. Uh, the last thing you want to be in this field is rigid. The last thing you want to do is draw a line and say this is true and that's not true, and I'm not going over the line ever. Uh, one thing that I've found in this field is that it's a lot stranger than I thought going in. So when I meet people who um, claim to, to do a Ouija board consistently and successfully over years, it's not like I'm going to believe them out of hand. But I will say I did do a very detailed study of remote viewing a couple of years ago. And when I did that study, I, I talked at length with Hal Putoff and Russell Targ and Ingo Swan and Joe McMonagall and Lynn Buchanan, all people that I know reasonably well. I did my homework. And I came away from my study of remote viewing very strongly persuaded that that is a real phenomenon, that human beings, probably every human being, has some ability to see across space and time. And in fact, I, I wrote an article on that for a magazine. I should put that article on my site because I, I still think it's not a bad piece. Trying to understand how is it possible for a human being to do that. The point that I'm making here is that um, I think that we live in a stranger reality than a pure nuts and bolts analysis of ufology would permit. So when I meet people like Laura Nightjansk, and I meet her husband, who is a, a peer-reviewed professional physicist, mathematician, and uh, when I meet her family and I see what kind of person she is, and she tells me that, that these are the messages she gets, I, I believe her truthfulness. I also trust her intelligence. So, uh, yeah, you know, I said what I did. And Alfred, though, of course, w with the headline, it was so sensationalistic. It really upset me, and um, but I'm still really not happy about it. Does it you bother know, he, you that, it, that prominent people in the field would then take it upon themselves to sort of go after you as opposed to asking you personally or through email, you know, what, what the hell? Well, I had a number of people who uh, did write to me privately via email and often very respectfully or at least at least in a non-insulting way say, hey, you know, what, what's going on with you and her? I, I think she's a load of crap and I can't believe that you, you'd sign on to what she's about. Uh, that's fine. I have no problem with anyone who wants to take issue with me. I'm very happy to discuss um, anything. Um, I'm not aware, actually. I mean, I don't really go trolling through the internet to look for things about me so I don't know what all that was said about me oh, you're a bigger man but than if, I am <laughs> I, I really I don't I want to extract some of what uh, I don't know if is in Richard's me. blood and put it in mine because <laughs> god damn it I need some of that need some of what, what just uh, that, not caring that, that calm demeanor narcissism <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah it's uh, uh, well look we all, everyone's got an ego uh, I, I'm not exempted um, when I got into this field, I, I got a real rush um, the first few times when people said nice things about my book. And, it, and it, I remember it really being um, bothered when uh, people like Dick Hall went after my book. So I, I'll get an emotional reaction too, but that was then. Um, I've gone through a lot since then. My attitude is um, I don't go looking for information. If someone were to, to have like a campaign against me, I, I guess I would have to deal with it. But uh, if if the odd person here and there has you know th this idea that he wants to trash me in some way, I'll usually just let it go. I don't have time. I really, literally, don't have time to get worked up over that. I had a book to write. I, I was able to do a six hundred thirty-eight page book 
because I didn't get involved in flame wars. If I did that, I would never get anything else done mm-hmm. with my research. And, and you have to have a certain amount of discipline. You also have to realize that, um, you know, you, I mean, meaning me, I'm not the center of the universe. If I were to die tomorrow, the world would go on just fine without me. It really, really, really would. And, and I think part of maturity, to be honest, is simply the realization that, um, yes, you know, everyone's important and no one is important. Um, people have opinions. I have opinions. But, um, but opinions are wrong. I've had wrong opinions. And the last thing that I ever want to do is get to be a fanatic about what I believe. Um, it's just I, I don't really. Yeah, but you know what, Rich? Like you put a lot of work into your books. I mean, obviously. I, I mean, how do you not get pissed off when you go to the X conference and you have to sit through who I unlovingly refer to as Conan the Discloser, uh, <laughs> Stephen Greer? Never heard that. How do you oh, Greer? Okay, Greer. How, how do you? How do you not get pissed about that kind of thing? All right. Let, let me say this without mentioning any names. There are certain people in this field that I've developed an actual physical aversion to. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. I cannot be near them. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. Now, there, there are a number of people in the exopolitical fields who are friends of mine. I mean, genuine friends of mine. Even if I know you guys don't agree with a lot of what they say, and, and I don't always agree with what they say. People like Steve Bassett or Paula Harris. Mm-hmm. I, I consider both of them dear friends of mine. I've gotten mm-hmm. to know them both. Uh, in particular, Powell, I really I know and like. And um, you know, I, it's not it's not necessary for me to agree with someone else to be able to have a working, respectful relationship. There are people, though. That the thing that turns me off of anyone is when when it's very obvious that their ego is driving them, rather than a disinterested search for truth. Mm-hmm. But what I, I mean, the strength, the true strength in research, true strength as, as a human being is in letting go of your actual personality and getting out of your own stupid little private Idaho and getting into a larger truth. Because the larger truth is always going to be bigger than your little personality. Mm-hmm. And when people get wrapped up into being a messiah and you know, you know who I'm talking about here, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You're going to lose sight of that. No matter how right some things you may have said might have been, you're going to, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose the magic. And yeah. I, there are people that I'm, I'm physically averse to and I just cannot be around. I mean, I think the only problem I've got with Miss Harris is that, you know, uh, from what I've heard, from what Jeremy has said to me, because he saw her at the, what, Jeremy, the Atlantic City Conference? Yeah. You know, where she basically said that the, the Billy Meyer case is real. Uh, I mean, I've got a real problem with that. I don't, well, I, I don't right, say I that just, I dislike the woman personally because I don't know her personally. I'm sure she's a very nice lady, but you know, I, I guess, I guess because this subject has, uh, and it's, I admit that it's a selfish reason that I'm even in this to start with. I'm in it because I've seen this stuff. It's affected my life in profound ways, and when I see it being marginalized by people saying things like that i just get incredibly like pissed i mean is, is this jeremy or jeff i'm not jeff jeff, jeff. um so well, i mean I, that's i, I get that's... that but, but look because I, I don't know if we're going to run out of time or not and i want to defend paula um on this matter i mean mm-hmm. i don't i don't really have actually i i sleezed out of even writing about billy meyer for my book <laughs> <laughs> i just kind of skulked my way out of it um 
I didn't, I didn't want to deal with it. Well, I mean, but the absence of Billy Meyer in my book, I think, speaks to the fact that I don't consider him a right. significant part of the history. Although, I mean, I could have gone out of my way to debunk the Meyer case. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not on board with the Meyer case. It's true, but I, there's, there's something that's preventing me from doing that as well. Um, it, it's my opinion that, that, um, you know, intelligent, honest minds can disagree on certain topics. And mm-hmm. the, I think the Meyer case is one. Um, I know that you guys don't agree with that. But <clears throat> for me to, to base uh, my opinion of any researcher on a litmus, te- litmus test of one case, it's just it's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. But this, case, this field is so uh, multifarious, it's so deep and complex that for me to, um, to judge someone on the basis of my opinion of, of how they take one case or not, I, I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's productive either. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can I can be quite sure that um, I I hold opinions right now that I, I'll five years from now I'm going to look back and think, oh my holy crap, how'd you think of that? Oh yeah, sure. And and, um, and so that part of it is that I I try to have an attitude in which I'm not dogmatic. But look, there are things on which I'm probably dogmatic. Mm-hmm. I'm dogmatic that there's a cover up. I guess you could say, right? I mean, I believe there's a cover up, mm-hmm. and if people disagree with me, they they would say the same thing about me that you're saying about Paola. So, um, but yet there's there's valuable things that we can contribute. Um, I think if we just lighten up a little bit, keep a critical focus, mm-hmm. disagree with the position, not the person, is what I try to do. The only exceptions I have is when I really feel that the person tries to take over and become the issue. Mm. And there are people in this field. I'm not going to mention them by name because, honestly, guys, I just don't want to get into it. I, yes. I don't want to have like this war that goes on and on and on. And there's a bunch of people out there yeah. that I could I could rattle off uh, who I would say this one, this one, this one, and this one, and I avoid them like the plague. Mm-hmm. I will not work with certain people in this field. And it's it's if you know it's a very simple litmus test for me if their ego is that much of an issue and they need to have attention all the time, I'm probably not going to want to hang out with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if they, if they have a conversation with me and they don't let me get a word in, then I'm not going to want to hang out with them. Right, right. So, uh, but look, I, I don't fault anyone for being wrong in this field. I mean, God. Oh, we're probably this all is, wrong. This is a tough <laughs> Everyone, of course. Yeah. So if I were to do that, I, I, I wouldn't have any any people that I would want to work with. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you who I really who I really dig. Who's probably going to be, uh, I don't know how long he wants to stay in this field, but a, a good buddy of mine is uh, Richard Souter. I don't know if what you guys think of Richard or if you're familiar with his work. Uh, Richard's coming out with a new book. I don't. I haven't seen it. I'm trying to get him to. Give me an advanced copy because I want to read it. But Richard does some work on uh, research on underground bases, underground technologies to build underground facilities and so forth. Um, Richard's a guy that I have a very high personal regard for. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe, I don't know what you guys think of her, but I have a very high regard of Linda Moulton Howe. Um, I think she did great until the drones. I mean, after that, I was kind of turned off. So again, I, I, I guess I am guilty of being one of those people who just kind of Okay, I'm done with that. You know, over I, I think, over I one think, thing. I mean, and I guess I'm wrong. I think with that. you I should. Mean, should re- uh, well, I would suggest seriously, Jeff, that you should reconsider that attitude. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone like Linda Moulton Howe. I I firmly believe this. When there's a history, if there's a history that's written in a hundred years on this topic, I'll guarantee you 
she's going to be an important part of it. And for, oh, for yeah. a positive way, not in, as a negative. Linda Moulton has done a Herculean amount of work in this field. Yeah. And um, if uh, if it turns out, and I'm not even saying this is the case, that some of it may not have been correct, well, that's the price you pay mm-hmm. when you go out and you investigate and you look into things the way she does. Yeah. So well, I, I think as far I, as the mutilation stuff went, the the cattle mutilation, I think that was unbelievable. Um, but yeah, see, yeah. see, see, I'll tell you what my mentality with that is: is that you know I, I read that and I, and I always thought really highly of her. Um, and uh, and then when the drone thing came out, um, uh, another party and myself wrote her to say, "Hey, Linda, the, the drone things—they're they're hoaxes, and here's why." And we went into gross detail about the why, and um, you know, and and basically just got ignored, and she just kept going with it. And that see, when that happens to me, then I have to look backwards on the work that was done before and kind of say, "Well, I guess I need to reevaluate that." I mean, is that unfair for me to feel that way? Everyone needs to have critical examination of their work, everybody. And, and no one is accepted, not Linda, not myself, not anybody, mm-hmm. uh, not you guys. So, no, I think you're justified to, to critically examine. But, it, you know, all I would say is when we examine anyone's opus of work, we should be critical, but we should be fair. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, well, I, still, us, I, I think you're right, though. I think she's a hugely important part in this, and I think she has done some amazingly good stuff. I asked her to write the forward to my book for a reason. I have I have a tremendously high regard for her, mm-hmm. personally. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that, uh, I'm, you know, you can't ask for anyone. I mean, Ted Williams was a great batter, but he hit 344, which many made an out more than half the time. So that's what you do in baseball, and that's what you do with a lot of investigations. Mm. You, you hit you hit a home run, and sometimes you make you make an out. Yeah. Well, what do you but think? Anyway, yes, I, I, what you're asking my opinions of people. Uh, so. um, yeah, yeah. I, I just want to bring up like a, I want to bring up a laundry list. Um, Robert Dean. Um, I love Robert Dean. I have. I mean, I actually revere him personally. Okay, mm. I actually do. I think Robert Dean is a is one of the most kind, gentle, good men that I've ever been privileged to know. Mm-hmm. And if it ever turned out that he was not truthful about his past, I, I would have no faith in anybody ever, mm-hmm. ever. That's how much I hold him in, in esteem. Um, he's, he's told a story. I mean, really, the, the, the one thing that you know is to be evaluated about Robert Dean is, was he in, in the military doing the things that he said he did at the time that he said he was there in, in 1960s? He certainly wasn't the military at that time. He certainly wasn't the services that he said he was. Uh, the real question is, did he get to see this uh, cosmic top secret document that he said he saw? Right. I, I believe him. You know, you would have to present some very, very compelling evidence for me not to believe that. So I think Bob Dane is truthful. What do you think about um, – uh, I saw a, a Project Camelot film where they were interviewing him and, and I, I – I, I took it as this was kind of his goodbye to ufology, that he was going to retire. Uh, and he kind of dropped the bombshell that he's uh, had alien contact. Right. I mean, what do you think of that? I mean, doesn't, for doesn't that to be... No? no? Not at all. It doesn't shock me in the least. Hmm. There's a lot of people... I've, I've talked to a lot of researchers privately who've said to me, 
never, 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 never tell. <laughs> I've had this experience. I've had that experience. I, I think that this is probably more widespread than people realize. Yeah, well. Uh, Bob Dean says it. And actually, uh, <clears throat> I didn't see that video, but I, 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 I'm recalling correctly what he said in it from what I've heard. He came out because a very good friend of his, uh, a longtime friend of his came out. Oh. Someone that he had known for a long time. I think I'm getting this right. Maybe I'm getting it wrong. Um, and he thought, well, you know, if he's able to do it, then I'm going to do it. Huh. And, uh, you know, I'm older than him by a couple of years, so what the hell? I'm just going to go do it. Right. Um, but no, I've I I have been privileged to uh, to spend time with Bob Dean on multiple occasions, and I have to tell you, Jeff, I've I have there are if you ever have if you ever get the chance to sit down and have uh, a meal with this man. Oh, I'd love to meet him. Yeah, he is, he is an absolutely wonderful human being. I I just can't see to see it in him. Um, Maybe that's just me being limited in this way, but uh, I'll say this: other people who know Bob Dean say the same thing. Hmm. I'm not the only one, right? Right. I'm absolutely not the only one. I think yeah, I think you can get that from seeing him on television. He seems like a very, very nice man, and uh, you don't get the feeling that he's making it up. No, he's he's uh, a very astute man. He's a mm-hmm. very, very sharp man. He's getting up there now. Bob's, uh, I think, about eighty. I'm going to see him in a month. I'm actually going to be at the uh, Project Camelot uh, conference, which is in uh, in mid-September, September 19th to the 20th. They asked me to go, and I said I'd go. Bob Dean will be there, and so I'm looking forward to seeing him there. So what do you think of uh, uh, Project Camelot? I mean, are you uh, are you up with everything? Well, in, I don't I, – I know – I I, no, I'm not on, up on every single interview they've done. No, no, I'm not. Okay. I know Kerry Cassidy, and I know Bill Ryan. Okay. I know them both personally fairly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I mean, what they do is they they'll interview, they interview everyone, they put it out there, mm-hmm. and I mean, I'm I'm aware as anyone else is of the criticism that they've taken over putting out interviews that are of people who are not reliable or not said to be reliable and so on. Right. Uh, undoubtedly, you know, um, but well, that's life. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think you know if they if they put out information that's that's um, that turns out to be a mistake, and I, I certainly don't think they're doing it. They would do that intentionally. I think uh, they're out there looking for a good story, and uh, and you know the thing, Carrie Cassidy in particular is a bulldog. Mm-hmm. She's she's very very sharp. She really knows a lot about politics. She uh, she's relatively new to ufology, but. Um, She's very sharp, very sharp. She had an exchange, I understand, with with uh, Stephen Greer, which I haven't yet seen. I've seen a short bit of that. Yeah, they, they had it out apparently, and I would like to see that. Wow, I'm sure that uh, that Carrie was more than held her own. Bill Ryan, just personally, is is an extremely rational, level headed guy. Hmm. Very easy to talk to. Very easy guy to deal with. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think the the thing of going after a, a, a story and all that is great. I, I think the problem for me. You know, again, goes to that um, probably me being too serious about things at, at times about this stuff is that, uh, you know, many people just looking for a good story or seeing it as like an entertainment value sort of thing. Well, I don't know. I think I, I do think that they have dug their teeth into some very real, serious uh, issues. I mean, I don't you mentioned something earlier, Jeff, that actually did did kind of bother me. And it was mm-hmm. the attitude that. Uh, it seemed to me that you considered all inside leaks uh, to be 
suspect. sources of disinformation, and, and I, I don't. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's actually accurate. I don't. I don't. I don't I, say I that. I say suspect. That at for me, it would be suspect. That, and that's just strictly from my point of view. That I would say. Well, I don't. I have to be suspicious. Case. I mean, you know, what does that actually mean in practice? When you when you get enough people mm-hmm. from disparate backgrounds and sources telling you things that seem to conform with each other in significant ways. I mean, mm-hmm. Which is what happens to these research. Bill Hamilton's a guy back in the 80s and 90s, same thing. Mm-hmm. Bill Hamilton investigated many uh, cases out in the Antelope Valley and out toward, uh, out toward Nellis and so forth. And got very consistent stories as well. I mean, mm-hmm. at a certain point, you know, you've got to have a critical threshold in which you say, this and this and this, this can't all be bullshit. There's got to be. Yeah. Oh, wait, I just said it. <laughs> the alarm. We're using the, that's a soundbite, Jeremy. Martha. There we go. Um, no, no it's not all bullshit. There's got to be something legitimate here, and uh, even though it can't be proven, it's it's a rational hypothesis you can make. But you, I agree. Um, the problem for me lies in that. Uh, well, okay, the cover up that exists. You would say there's pretty much no doubt these people are really good at what they do. Am I right? I mean, really good. These people. Uh, These people, meaning the, the purveyors of whatever cover-up right. there is. Okay. Um, yes. It, it's not a stretch for me to say that um, their their reach is far-reaching, and, uh, and and that you know even as far back as the fifties, there could have been some sort of initiative to put people out, um, you know, with a story that is a set story that's to be followed and is not to be deviated from. I, I mean. At a, at a certain point for me, it almost going over it in my head. It's like, is the cover up more complex than what the truth would be <laughs> out in the open? It, you know, it, 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 it does strain credibility at some point to say, uh, does it reach that far? Could it be that deep um, that you're going to get similar stories from people who don't know each other, who aren't connected in any real connectable way that you know of? Um you know, like I said at the beginning, my my problem is is that people who were involved at keeping a cover up secret were part of the cover up. So therefore, coming forward at a certain point in time kind of makes me suspicious in saying, "Okay, I, I yeah, believe." Look, look, think of it this way: it, it take UFOs out of it. I mean, okay. just look at other aspects of the intelligence community; mm-hmm. they're always inside leaks, mm-hmm. constantly. Mm-hmm. Mind control, all the mind control stuff that came out in the 1970s. I mean, that was all true. It all happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this is a program that was run for decades in total secrecy. Mm-hmm. No one knew about MKUltra for, for decades. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you know how we know about MKUltra? By a mere roll of the dice, mm-hmm. by mere accident. Here's what happened. Richard Nixon fired uh, CIA Director Richard Helms very, like, abruptly after Nixon got reelected in 1972. He said, you have a month to clear out your desk. You're gone. Mm-hmm. So Helms now, <clears throat> who had been running the CIA since the mid-60s and who before that was director of operations, that is, uh, director of all the clandestine group, which did all the nasty covert ops. Helms was one of the few guys at the CIA who knew, like, basically everything there was to know. So Helms is now thinking, damn, what am I going to... I've got a cleaned house here, and I don't have a lot of time to do it. So we, one of the key programs we know that he wanted to clean up on was the MK Ultra program, the mind control program, in which the CIA conducted at times or sponsored terminal sensory deprivation experiments 
okay? Which, in other words, you'd be in a little box until you went crazy and died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all other kinds of lobotomies and all, all horrible, grisly, Frankenstein-type stuff that they did to people. Mm-hmm. So Helm said, we got to hide all of this. And it was very effectively hidden. Um, well, so he told the leader of the program, a guy named Sid Gottlieb, he said, you know, get it all out, man. Get it out. Gottlieb did a pretty good job, but not a perfect job. And so what happened? Rumors came out by people who had been mind-controlled, who had said, you know, this happened to me and so on. And a researcher named John Marks went a-looking and he went hunting and he found a box of, uh, of, I think it was financial records. Seemed innocuous enough, but that led him. That was the, the missing, that was the, the piece that led him to the MKUltra program and that's when the story broke. Hmm. So now, I mean, all I'm saying is this. There are leaks. There are allegations all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, no cover-up is ever perfect. Right. A UFO cover-up is not perfectly done. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's, it's, it's in plain sight, if you really want to get into it. It's a five-minute internet search with some good sources will give you a great starting point mm-hmm. as to why this is a big deal and why it's serious. Right. So, um, But there are leaks that happen all the time. The, the plutonium injections. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were, you know, things... There were always like these rumors percolating below the surface within that world, and and then they come out. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that government works is by design. Mm-hmm. Uh, the intelligence community, by design, is is to, to keep secrets from people. It's how they do things. Oh sure. How, why why would it be any different with the UFO phenomenon? If you have an, a, a phenomenon that is violating your sensitive airspace and you're sending jet interceptors up to go get these things and you fail again and again, how on the world could it not be something that would be important to you and your national security interests? How the hell could you not spend the time to make this a priority and a secret one too because you don't want to just you know, blah, blah this to death when you don't even know what's going on? So of course you would keep it secret. Mm-hmm. But that's a cover-up. That's exactly what it is. And as right. the years go by, okay, as the years go by, that cover-up gets its own momentum. I do believe that the evidence is sufficient for the argument that we have recovered exotic technology. This is, again, what I think. And if that is so, then that takes the cover-up to a vastly different dimension. This is a story that I, I really try to follow uh, in my in my new book, which is going to be in print in a in a week. In a week. In a week. By the time people hear this, yeah. the week of the seventeenth, August. Well, the, my printer is now telling me August seventeenth uh, should be the, then or about the time that I get these books. So it's soon, and I'll be shipping them out. I've had many many pre-orders already. The book is available for pre-order from my website uh, at keyholepublishing.com. I've just revamped my website. It's actually. It's almost pleasant now to navigate through. Um, for the first time in like since forever, I'm actually uh, you know relatively happy with this site. Now I'm going to continue tweaking it. Uh, I would like to thank you, Jeff, for, uh, for doing a little bit of graphic artwork. Help. Oh, hey, anytime, Rich, anytime. Very, very grateful for what you did. The masthead was designed by Jeff Richman, and Jeff, you did a fabulous job. Thank you, sir. Uh, absolutely. But um, I know we've we've probably gone what, more than two hours. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope four and a half hours of your life total for this. Oh, like I know, awesome. I, here's what I I dread. You know, I'm just like waiting. 
well, I'm, I'm not even going to know because I don't. I, I I truly don't pay attention. But like, I'm sure. Are, are there going to be news groups out there or, or message boards where they're like, oh, my God, listen to what Dolan said about X, Y, or Z or this person or that one. So it'll, it'll all come out. But that's what it's all about. They're talking, ain't they? Getting, getting the word out. <laughs> well, thanks, well, thanks a lot. again yes. for you know, doing this again with us. And um, you know, absolutely come back anytime. We, we have a lot to cover. We, I, uh, we talked I about abductions last guys. time. We didn't get into it this time. I would love to have a nice chat about that at some point. Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully the next next time. I mean, my, my book will be out, and and uh, you guys and other people will have had time to digest it and uh, nitpick your way through, which you, you should do. Uh, I'm sure you'll see things in there. You'll think, oh, that's pretty good, and other things uh, not so good. So you'll have the opportunity to have gone through it, maybe, and um, formulate your own opinions. That's great. Very that's good. Great. Thank you, sir. Take care. My pleasure. My pleasure. Both of you guys have a great night, and uh, we'll be in touch, I'm sure. You too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. This is Mark Nesbitt. I wrote The Ghosts of Gettysburg. You are listening to Paratopia with Jeff and Jeremy. So, Jeff. Yes, Jeremy. It's not as if this show isn't long enough. You wanted to <laughs> add something? Uh, well, we always do a wrap-up. Sure, blame it on the wrap-up. Well, it's the wrap-up, isn't it? Oh, that's right. <laughs> you big jerk. <laughs> what, 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 what shall we wrap with? Uh, so, how about that Rich Dolan? Oh, yeah. We interviewed Rich. Right. Uh, and that went well. And it was, you know, once again, very nice of him to, uh, to do it twice. It's so nice he had to do it twice. Um, but right. I know that, you know, the first time we did it, there was some stuff that, that I think you felt better with. Um, and even me, you know, I really liked our abduction chat. And I hope that he comes back so that we can replicate that <laughs> if possible. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure there are some listeners out there wondering how it is I kept silent during the whole Paula Harris uh, defense. <laughs> Um, but really it's like you can argue something or not and i just chose not to it's like you know what's the point it's his friend if he wants to um believe in her <laughs> great but i would hasten to add that it's not just the one case that she is guilty of endorsing it's really a whole host of stuff um what was the uh, can you relate for the audience what the other one was that you saw at atlantic city which was the malformed children down in south america uh i don't know if they were in south america i think they were in italy i think it was an italian case i could oh. be wrong but it was this you know these children with you know like cute kids with spock ears basically that are supposed to be aliens you know and we're just supposed to i guess take her word for it but there's um you know she endorses this crap you know and you know it's crap and how do you know because that was in atlantic city last year and um you haven't heard anything on uh on cnn about it <laughs> so so there's that but there's the other issue of that she will put um hoax ufo footage that has been debunked ages ago into her presentation and when called on it says well i'm going to continue to put it putting it in my presentation because it looks good so facts be damned <laughs> if it's uh makes the presentation look better she'll use it and that bothers me so there's a bunch of stuff and her whole billy meyer thing was completely disingenuous i mean she was arguing with someone 
about it, um, and then like calling me into whisper secret secretively. You know, I didn't want to say it uh, because that guy was so angry and blah blah blah. But if you knew, you know, the secret NASA documents that I had seen, you would know this case is real. You know, all that sort of stuff. It's like, but yeah, but none of that is true, Paula. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, in fact, as you had pointed out to me, um, Jim Dilatoso was guilty of faxing faked NASA documents on NASA letterhead to people. So, I, you know, I, all I know, idea. yeah, all I know is that I, I think it was Russ Estes told me many years ago that he had used NASA stationery for something. And when I heard you mentioned the NASA, um, you know, papers that that Harris you know, was talking about, I'm thinking, well, that's probably what she means. But also, I mean, Royce Myers on UFO Watchdog, that's one of the points put against Jim on that, uh, on that website. So, I mean, you know, uh, obviously there's something to it. I haven't seen these alleged NASA documents, and, uh, uh, and my own feeling is much like I think you said on the Culture of Contact when you went there, was that, these documents weren't shown. She just started talking about them. You know, they weren't even shown, which is kind of weird anyway. And really, they're documents. What does that mean? Who couldn't fake that? You know what I mean? It's Again, it's just... Right. And then there's other shady things like, you know, <laughs> trying to turn Corso against the Burnses and, you know, her publisher basically trying to steal Corso's work, you know, illegally. I mean, he was stopped from doing that through the courts, you know, and so she's got that, like, chip on her shoulder. It's like, you know... The typical shady sort of stuff, and then you watch her presentation, and a lot of it is just crap. You know, it's it's yeah. filibustering on garbage. So there's that, and then I get to thinking about um, uh, what, what's his name, Robert Dean. It's like, well, Rich, I, I just would caution you to not hang your hat on Robert Dean. If I'm sure he's a nice guy, I'm sure he seems really honest. My, you know, I've only ever seen a couple of videos of him talking, and my takeaway was that he was fibbing, that he's just making shit up. But, you know, that's just me. Um, but the point is, I could be wrong, and Rich could be wrong, and that's the type of personality that Robert Dean is always going to be in this field because he's one of those neither here nor there, can't prove what he's saying people. Mm. So I wouldn't hang everything uh, I'm in this for on somebody that at the very start of the, the issue is... Um, Someone who is, I guess, shady by definition. Mm. Because didn't Rich say, well, if he's not telling the truth, I'd have to reevaluate everything. It's like, I don't think that's the guy you hang that on. Even if he is a great guy and all of that, even if that's true, just by proxy of his position in all of this, I would just warn him against that, I guess. Well, like you said, the, the first interview that we did was a, like a little more freeform. We got a lot more out. We talked about abductions, about golf breeze, which was kind of interesting to talk about with him because... You know, that's like a, a big case to me. But I think I think my fundamental problem here uh, with Rich is that, you know, he, he's got these industry insiders, these these government insiders who are coming forth and giving him this information, which, number one, I don't know how he vets that information. How does he solidify who this person is that's coming to him, you know, that, that doesn't want their name revealed with probably good reason? Um I know he took issue with the fact that I said, you know, aren't you suspect at all of this stuff that's coming forth from anonymous sources that you can't talk about? 
and I didn't I didn't mean to allude that it was all this information. I'm saying that's always got to be in the back of your head at some point or another. Uh, I don't know how well that factors into what he thinks when he meets one of these people or one of these people contacts him to give him whatever little snippet that they have. I think ultimately the problem for me is is that when you have an anonymous source that you bring forth and you say, anonymous source X told me this, and I can't reveal this person because they're in a very sensitive place. I know who they are, and um, you know you, you, just, you can take this for what it's worth. And, uh, you know, I, I think when we saw Rich a couple of years ago and went to hear him talk, I heard him say these words a lot. You know, I have insiders who tell me I this, that, and the other. And what you're doing as a researcher going up in front of people and saying this is you're essentially saying, look, if you, if you think enough of me and you trust me enough as a researcher, then you're going to – hopefully be able to understand why I can't reveal a source and hopefully trust me enough and my judgment enough, my critical judgment to say, this is good information and I can pass this on to you as possibly something that's viable. That's all well and good. The problem is, is that you can't tell someone who to be friends with, but I would think someone in Rich's position with this would not want to be associated with a, a pale Harris or, you know, I, I I say Laura Knight because I can't pronounce her last name. But you would think that you would kind of, you know, just kind of veer away from that. But again, Rich is such a nice, likable, friendly, smart, intelligent man, which is a rarity in this field. You can't help but kind of uh, say, well, who, who, you know, who wouldn't want to be friends with this guy? I mean, look at him. He's, he's uh, well-spoken, well-educated. He's definitely something we need in this. Uh, I just think that, you know, and I don't even know if he realizes it, that this kind of is the public perception of him that, you know, what are you doing, Rich? Why are you, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you saying that about this person? And we know he explained the, the Laura Knight thing with Alfred Weber, and we know the exit political crowd and how fly off the handle they can be with this stuff. But I don't know. I got to say, you know, when you start talking about anonymous sources and cover up uh, leaks and stuff like that, that you can't give any background on. I can't hang my hat on something like that when that person and I I don't want to say it this way and make him feel unwelcome not to come on the show again, because that's simply not the case. I really like Rich. I support him in what he's doing, but I can't I can't I can't abide by somebody who says, you know, anonymous sources tell me and here it is effectively saying trust my critical judgment and they're friends with someone like paola harris granted there's friends and then there's colleagues i mean i don't know how he draws that line well he certainly has to say her work you know i mean that's yeah i mean and 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 i can't (laughs) i mean there's not much i can do with that i i mean i don't think the critical judgment is there for that so and this is strictly my opinion i'm not saying he lacks critical judgment across the board but in that one particular thing i think he has to understand that when you you know when you when you stand up for somebody like that the critical judgment just doesn't seem to be there so how can i really listen to the anonymous insiders who and what they say because are you judging these people by the same you know weight and scale well, yeah, i mean it's also it's a weird field because you can't say you can't really say as he wants to, um, you know, basically, I don't pay attention to this stuff. I just do my work and, um, you know, I don't judge 
I won't judge her based on one case, um, because these are the people whose stuff you're reading and, and gleaning your information from. They're not just friends who have some other profession you're not aware of. <laughs> right, I mean, right. they're actually the people you're going to cite in your own book. So you have to know who it is that you're uh, reading for information, you know, and where they get their information from. I mean, I mean, this is all self-explanatory at this point. Well, I mean, the other point, I think he he accidentally made your point for you, you know, at some point about the conspiracy stuff, um, which is that, um, you know, he kept saying, well, there, there is a conspiracy, Jeff, uh, the conspiracy, (laughs) either way you look at it, there's a conspiracy. It's either for something great or for, we don't know, but you were saying, you know, you can't, you, you can't, how can you trust a disinformationist who steps forward and says, I'm not a disinformationist anymore. Right. Um, well, what I wanted to ask was, you know, if the government came out tomorrow and disclosed that, you know, we got visitors and everything that goes with a speech that would follow, would Rich Dolan believe them? Would he say, OK, there it is, people. This is what I've been saying. Or would he be suspicious like I would, like very suspicious as to, OK, you know, you've aggressively defended this lie for 60 plus years. Why now? And why should I believe after everything that you've allegedly done in in protecting the secret? Why should I believe you're telling me the truth now? I mean, that's always been kind of the thing with me. I just don't. I don't think. I don't think there's going to be that kind of thing. Either. I don't think he would believe it no. wholeheartedly. Well, I don't think anybody would. <laughs> in fact, he's always said he doesn't believe disclosure will happen for some of the reasons we talk about. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, in his ex conference uh, talk that we saw was. A lot of points about that, like if this came out, you know, and this technology became available to the public, the first thing some people would do would be try to make a bomb out of it, you know, Um, better weapons and all that. So, you know, um, and all all good points that he makes. But I definitely Um, think um, the the Rockefeller point I did. I did in my head have David Rockefeller and Lawrence Rockefeller mixed up, Um, but it doesn't matter because they're both Rockefeller brothers. So you would assume. That the most powerful in the family uh, knows. <laughs> and it's not enough to say, well, one's a maverick. I mean, what does that mean? So he's not privy to the same information as David Rockefeller? I mean, you either have the most powerful family in America controlling everything, which means they wouldn't need to go to Clinton and ask him, hey, will you, um, will you do anything? Will you disclose this to the public? Because they would demand of him that he do that, right? They put him there. Right. <laughs> so you, you can't really have your cake on that and eat it, too. I mean, either these Rockefellers know everything or they don't. And the fact that they were funding, again, from the point of view of someone who knows everything there is to know about UFOs, rudimentary UFO research and surveys, it just doesn't it doesn't ring true to me that they know anything at all, let alone control uh, it. You know? Right. Well, I mean, there's uh, and again, Rich always does pretty much say when he's speculating on things and when it's conjecture and he's taken heat for conjecturing on any of these things because he's the historian you know i don't and i'm not even sure how he got that got labeled with that historian why because he's a history you know uh, um, a scholar i mean I understand his books are yeah. What else? Sort how, of. A, how else would you be called a historian? What other? Well, but I mean, why? Than being a historian, well, do you need to be a historian? Well, well, but I mean, a historian of the UFO field. I mean, really? I mean, uh, well, that's I the mean, thing. It's supposed to be. You know, the catch is that he's a historian applying his his critical eye, and here we get into problems yeah, again. I, I guess <laughs> the UFO uh, field. 
Um, I guess that would be the original shtick. Now it would be that yeah. he's in this. Uh, but I've read where you know no historian should be conjecturing you know on his you know possible you know findings. I'm like, well, why not? You know, be this is ufology. This isn't <laughs> history of the world part two. This is you know. It would be interesting to see if you gave his books to um, a historian or a military historian if they if any of the stuff would actually fill in the gaps of stuff mm. that's just missing from history. That would be kind of interesting. I really enjoyed his first book, and uh, I don't agree with everything in it. Like, uh, for instance, you know, the, the, the whole Forrestal thing or McDonald's suicide. I mean, I, I, I wanted to bring up, but again, I just, I, I just didn't bring it up. But, you know, McDonald, there's a guy who, you know, killed himself, and Rich finds something obviously suspicious about that. But the fact of the matter is, is that the guy had, tried to kill himself before and blinded himself uh, with the gun. Uh, so, I mean, geez, it's not that big a stretch to say he killed himself. Um, you know, a lot of problems going on. I mean, uh, you know, people have private things that they're, that they're commiserating over, and some grow into something you could kill yourself over, and nobody would really, oh, my God, what happened to Jeremy? Why would he do this, you know? He seems so happy. Well... You only think you know public figures to a certain point. There's a whole life underneath of there that you know nothing about. And, and you know, I, that that's just me. I, I saw where uh, McDonald had tried to kill himself previously, and it didn't work. Hmm. So, obviously, second time was the charm. But, but, I mean, overall, here's my thing. You know, if you're, if you're in ufology and you're – and that seems, it seems like a kind of a, a funny way to say it for this show. But if you're serious about it – uh, and you care about it. You genuinely care about it, which I think Rich seems to genuinely care about the situation with this stuff. Then you kind of almost have to take a certain amount of ownership of it when you care about it. You know, and, and I've been accused of being too intense with people and and all of that. But it's it's largely I mean, and I said this during the show because and I know you cringed because I sound like another host. But, um, you know, I said it sounds like you is the problem. Well, I. I, you know, I said what two or three years ago on Above Top Secret when everybody said to me, "Why are you such a hard ass? Why are you this and why are you that?" Because I was spoiling everybody's UFO picture fun. Uh, <laughs> I was the killjoy, you know. I explained to them, "So look, the reason I'm so hard on this subject is because it's affected me. I, I mean, I'm very selfish in that manner. That you know, I'm I'm not going to allow something that." that I feel is, is, is very important and something that has not only affected my life, but your life dramatically and other people's. And why should we sit back and see something like that marginalized time after time by people like, like, uh, uh Meyer and Horn and, uh, Sean David Moore, name any of them. I don't care who you want to pick out of the, you know, the, out of the pool. Um, why are you going to sit back and just let that happen? Because, it's it's polluting public public opinion. That's why we're in the state we're in now. And and you know, Rich obviously cares about it, but again, his associations with some people in ufology just don't seem to make sense to me. If you care about it, what, why would you entertain certain people? That just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, maybe he makes a definitive line between his UFO work and the friends that he makes within it. And if you can do that, man, more power to you. I can't do that. 
Uh, and maybe that's where I need to lighten up is that I, I can't make that distinction between the two. I, think I take that, that very personally. Yeah, you know? Well, I, I don't think you can because you're an experiencer. I think that if he were an experiencer, it would be a different ballgame for him. He would he would have a better compass about that or more of a sort of depth to it. But I, I think if you're a researcher um, who needs to sort of sustain yourself by writing books and speaking publicly – uh, it does behoove you to network and to make contacts and to yeah. sort of turn a blind eye to certain things or whatever because – Play the game. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, play the game. I mean at the end of the day, uh, you can justify it by saying, well, as long as I'm not doing those things, uh, mm-hmm. it's not on my head. So I'm going to go about my work. I'm going to do well for me mm-hmm. and you know, let those people do what they're going to do. And if – as he said, I mean if his – big sort of critical precipice is whether or not someone is in this for egoic gains or not. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't think that that would be, I don't think that would be the bar he would set if he were an experiencer. I think it would be, uh, well, are they actually good at what they do? Are they actually representing the possibilities, the realistic possibilities of what's going on here? Um, you know, it would be all of those sorts of things. Are they even getting, no, are, are they right? Do they care about yeah. what they're saying? Right. Are are the are is the subject? Money? I mean, screw it. Go is insane. It, <laughs> it, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, is, are they treating the subject serious enough that your your average Joe on the street might go, huh? Instead of pointing and laughing, you know. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, when when Paola puts her pie tins up on the screen, that's a huge turnoff to some people, and you know, because you've probably met some of these people at these conferences that have never been to a conference before, and they just come in to see what it's all about. You know, and you've got a chance there that if a uh, astrophysics guy walks into a conference, you've got a chance to – and he comes in with an open mind saying, I want to hear what these people have to say. And that's the first thing that he's presented with. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Well, I think the thing I mean, that I have heard over and over again from people who disagree with our particular position is uh, that the public um, can discern for themselves. They're smart enough to discern from them- for themselves. And again, I, I just I think that that's from that point of view. I understand where that point of view comes from, but I think from our point of view, it's a cop out, and there needs to be more. You know, I, I just don't know that our point of view is is correct, more correct than what theirs is, or just different. Yeah. Or what I mean, I, because I can I can see it both ways. I do well. Okay, I do obviously I have my point of view, and therefore I think it's more correct than the one I don't have. So. Like, that's a disingenuous question, I suppose. But I just—I guess I don't want this to sound like uh, a Rich Dolan slam session because it really isn't. I mean, my feeling no. is that if Rich were to listen to this, it would actually probably affect him. You know, he probably would think about these things, and that makes him uh, a far better person in this field than um, half of his well, friends. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, again, I mean, and and all credit to Rich, but when we were talking about abductions in the first show. That we that we that we lost. I I took issue with him saying that uh, you know he has an enormous amount of respect for David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins. I have respect for them in the sense that these were the two pioneers of bringing this kind of experience to the public. But I have real problems with how they gather data and what kind of conclusions that they draw from it. Real problems, and and I've gone over these before on the show, so I'm not going to reiterate them, but. Uh, and Rich was the kind of guy who wouldn't jump down your throat about that. He sits and he listens, you know, and, and you can disagree with Rich Dolan and he's not going to get pissed or bent out of shape about it. And there's, 
there's definitely a feather in his cap for that being that kind of guy. So I don't think he would listen to any of this and feel, you know, hurt by it. I mean, I think he knows that we are not big fans of, you know, some of the people that, that he associates with around in the field. And, and uh, I think that's, you know, that that's, that's okay with him. But I just wanted to kind of convey like, this is how I view that in the sense that, you know, how much, how much can I trust the critical judgment call on the issues that he brings up with regard to, especially to the inside insider information, you know, uh, I, I can't look at that and say, huh, well, that, isn't that interesting? I, I just look at that and go, I can't trust the critical judgment because either you care about this stuff or you don't, and you care about the way it's presented, and you try to refute nonsense that does come out that tarnishes it, or you make friends with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and really, you can't have it both ways for that. And uh and I know this sounds like we're trying to tell Richard Dolan, look, don't be friends with Paola Harris or don't be friends with so-and-so. But that's not really it. It's just the – I'd be very curious to have Rich have a discussion with Paola about the Meyer case. How or how would that conversation – Bring me oh, to yeah. your elven children. Bring me to them. Show them to me. Yeah. I mean, and, and how would that – how would that move along? And uh, – I don't know. It's 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 tough because on one side you've got a guy who's super smart, articulate, and on the other side there's like you say there's that networking aspect that he has to he has to play, you know he has to play that he can't not make those contacts and don't in the effort of eat. You know, yeah he's got a family to support and and uh, I I think he's between a rock and a hard place and in a way I feel for him in that respect but. I think sooner or later, man, you got to take a stand and say, you know, this is bullshit, and here's why, and, and give the definitive proof, mm-hmm. and let the chips fall where they are. Because until then, I don't think anybody's ever going to really take you seriously as as much as seriously as they could. You know, I think he's already taken seriously by a lot of people, but I think these marks kind of, I don't know, make a lot of people turn away. Unfortunately, yeah. Well, they're little things that sort of chip away at your credulity and especially in a well i don't even want to say field but just any sort of position of power or fame such as it is in ufology when you have it people will use anything to tear you down and so why oh, give yeah. them the fuel but what i wanted to say um before that I, I i don't think i actually made the point of him making your point about uh about these these whistleblowers is that he made your point when he said um, that they're the best at what they do, that this is all more secret than secret. You know, it's above, above top secret to be the pinnacle of what top secret means. Right. Well, that's to your point of then these disinformation people, it wouldn't be like any other sort of like CIA leak or anything like that. It, uh, it would be something where you could imagine people in a room in the 1950s, you know, sitting around going, okay, we're going we're gonna to cover this up by having this story unfold over the years through you know x y and z channels and that way it'll look coherent and that way people will trust it etc etc i mean it it it, i don't know i think that stands to reason and that was your point yeah i mean when rich brought up the uh 
uh, LSD experiments, the, the MK Ultra stuff, and said, you know, that was leaked and this was leaked. Yeah, well, all that stuff's very interesting, and it's heinous, you know, acts by that that I guess Cold War government. You know, I mean, I, I guess there were heinous things that went on, but none of those things that they came out and when they came out destroyed the fabric of society. <laughs> you know. So I think maybe those things weren't quite as well protected as they should have been. I expect something like that to leak. Something like this, which if it were revealed, you know, as much as people say they're ready for it, could cause mass panic, would cause a lot of disease, would be, um, in my opinion, if it didn't come out that that this was going on and this was happening, it would be the the loss of government, the loss of governmental control and confidence in, in the protection of that government. So... It's a bigger secret, yeah. and the idea that all these um, disconnected people throughout, you know, just say the past thirty or forty years, are all saying the same thing. I don't find that so big a stretch. Here's the story, people: don't deviate from it one iota. Period. End of story. Yeah, I just and think the, the very the, people the that stakes, cover it up. The stakes are just know. that. The stakes are. It's not a matter of, uh, wow, our government really sucks. They fed black people and re- retarded people uranium. Right. Uh, the story isn't that kind of awful. The story is, wow, everything I know and believe myself to be and believe about life and have been taught throughout history is completely wrong. Right. That you would cover up. Uh, it would never it's, leak. <laughs> it's it's a lot. It's a lot bigger thing. And and uh, and that's 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 it. And and here's the other thing about these insiders is. Uh, compartmentalization is just that i don't think that any one person is going to know anything that would be of real value if it's that compartmentalized every person would have this little indiscriminate piece that to the larger whole would make sense in an overall picture but everybody's given so damn little and and told so very little about it that what good would it do to talk about it? it? It you wouldn't even know what you were really talking about. And, uh, I, and I think Rich would be one of the first people to tell you that the government has used the UFO thing uh, to hide black project testing. That's been done. That's that's I think pretty well known about. Considering there was just a show on the History Channel a few days ago saying this, you know that. I think it was it, it spoke to it was, a, it was a British aerospace writer. I can't remember what his name was. He did a great documentary about UFOs, the history of UFOs, and all that. And uh, and you know this was this was done. Uh, so it's been used at certain points in history to cover up things that they've been working on. And uh, what if some of the things they've been working on? are really pretty advanced stuff that's being tested. And these people are simply relating what they've seen as far as being connected to a black project that they think or maybe were told was alien to cover up of what we actually have. And I think, again, in our in our first show, Rich brought up this point of the huge triangle sightings and all of these, uh, you know, the, the secret space program, which, you know, we had Wes Owsley to come on and talk about. You know, he said, I think I can't remember exactly how Rich phrased it, but like we've got a lot of really advanced stuff. And he made this point in this show, I think, about how we do. We don't always bring our best weapons out for every little skirmish or war we get into. Right. Uh, we are holding things back in the setting. And, and that kind of drove his point home. But my problem is, is that uh, and like I said to him during that first show was. Where is this technology? Because if you're dumping trillions of dollars into this stuff and you're developing it and you're developing it enough that you can fly it over populated areas where people can see it, 
you know, if you've got the kind of technology and it's that solid and it's that old and we've been working on it that long, then you're going to expedite that those trillions of dollars to work for you in some way. And it's either one thing. It's, it's either uh, uh, domination or capitalization. You're going to make money off of it privately or you're going to dominate the world with it. And neither of those things have happened. Well, I think his answer Why? to that is that there's that along with that conspiracy goes that it's actually a parallel world they've created for themselves. So they run parallel to us with all of their knowledge yeah. and everything. They don't actually interact with us, which is cute. But I, 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 why? I don't know if that's true. You know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I why even buy that as a possibility? I guess it is. Why? Well, because I guess if you, it'd be like any secret society. If you know all of these great big secrets, then how can you even relate to the commoner? Well, well, what what good are the secrets doing you though? If you can't put anything into action, or you don't put anything into action, we don't know what they're doing. I mean, presumably by that they've traveled to other worlds and met other civilizations and we're already in some giant galactic federation i mean i can't think of any other reason to have that theory unless Ugh. that's true you know unless they're running coke out of key west you know with this stuff so i mean i don't know i mean i don't know i got a very hard time with all that stuff because you know um <laughs> I, I, I i don't know i just don't uh i just don't see that i mean wes um uh, uh, Rich made a good point in that Wes may have not been privy to those projects, or maybe those projects don't exist at NASA. Maybe they exist in privately funded places that we know nothing about. I'm sure that's a possibility. You know, my problem is is if if we've been flying this stuff around since the 50s or 60s, and and that explains some UFO sightings, then where is that technology now, and what are we doing with it? And I I don't know. I mean, again, if you're if you're traveling to distant stars and meeting up with other people on other planets, to what end? Why would you not share that? Why would that? There's no power in in knowing that, is there? I mean, what are you what are you getting out of it? Immortality? I mean, are you getting some big secret no one can know because it would destroy the planet? What? <laughs> so I, I I don't know about all that, but uh, I think that's all, all I wanted to cover really with this is that you know the points that we hit on um i think rich is like a great guest and and he's great in a sense that he will listen to just what we've said you know he'll listen to dissenting views and and respond to them and uh the next time he comes on you know i think we ought to present these to us say like here's our concerns and what do you think of these and how do you respond to that i definitely think that uh he explained well what happened with the whole lizard people (laughs) yeah you know I mean, there it is. I really you know? like the MJ-12 bit, too. I didn't think I would, but I did. I, I learned some stuff there that I hadn't heard before. Uh, right. I don't know. I mean, I find a lot of I find a lot of what he has to say interesting, and I especially, you know, I appreciate anyone who has dug up some cases that no one's heard of and put them in a book. Yeah, you know, that are yeah. Great cases. I mean, absolutely. You know, I look forward to reading it. So, you know, absolutely. ultimately, again, I don't want this to sound like bitch fest 2009 uh no. it's just some concerns um and you can extrapolate from that that the rest of it we are not concerned with <laughs> well i guess i mean the, i think the mj12 papers were fakes and i think that's the end of it i don't i don't well, necessarily yeah, I believe that, that you know yeah i mean i don't 
Well, I think he did. Did he not say that he believed that some facets of MJ-12 documents possibly could be real information that was there? Yeah, I mean, at some point with a, a lie that has a bit of truth to it. Sure. Right. I, I don't you know, I don't know that any of that's true either. But uh, I mean, who knows? I, all of that stuff is it's it's so soiled by this point. Who can get anything out of it? But yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think we brought a lot of what we talked about in this after show part. I think we talked directly to Rich about during the show. This is just kind of reiterating points for the next time he comes on. So, you know, <clears throat> I figure he'll be back in a couple of months after he gets done with his barrage of book sales and, and lectures and all of that. So, and uh, maybe we could hook up with him uh, at the next X conference in the bar. Yeah, that'd be a that'd be a good spot. <laughs> I'll, I'll probably have a uh, crosshairs on my forehead if I show up at the next X conference. Well, be that as it may, <laughs> we will be there. <laughs> so, thanks again to Rich for coming on and uh, going above and beyond the call for this show. So, hats off to Rich for that. Take care, y'all. See ya. 